0: This is part two of my conversation with Gregory Cochran. You probably want to listen to part one before you start part two. The conversation starts where we were talking about the value of conformity to employers and what what employers care about when hiring people. And of course, because I'm talking with Greg, we get into issues of political correctness fairly soon. What? Well part, part of conformism means, is... That's a separate question. If part of conformism is turning your stuff in on time, you know, showing up when you're supposed to, then I think almost every company wants that.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, so often it's like, we're doing this thing that's totally pointless, but we're doing it the way we were told and we all The ship is now sinking on an even keel. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it happen <laughs> more than once, uh, and I've read more than that. Uh, but, by the way, it may be what they want, even if it isn't what they need. Because mm-hmm. they aren't terrible, uh, I don't think they're terribly good at it, uh, at, at picking out what they want. And I think they've gotten worse.
0: Uh, you mean companies uh, when hiring?
1: Yeah, some worse. Yeah. Uh, well, but the thing is, it varies. I mean, like, um, oh, for example, uh, suppose we we're talking someplace like Google.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I suspect that if you suppose you, you know they look for a certain fairly high levels of certain kinds of competency. Yes. Okay. But suppose, and it just does happen. I mean, I could mention pe- famous people like uh, uh, <clears throat> who was I thinking of? Well, all right, Gauss. I mm-hmm. guarantee Gauss would not be. Gauss is probably talented enough to work for Google. Yeah. But would he politically fit in? No. Hell, he was a mar- he was a monarchist. <laughs> uh, uh, but the point is, I get the impression that there's all sorts of things that they wouldn't want. And that, that that would throw out some talent at least because you have to think like we're supposed to think. Mm-hmm. Now I may be wrong, but I've asked people who work in the area that say that is what goes on. And there are people who work at Google who have to be careful never to say certain things that they you know voted the wrong way or thought the wrong way or went to church or something like that yeah. that they that will be bad for their career at Google.
0: Although I wonder, if the more talented you are, the more you can get away with deviating.
1: There are well, I've been. Mean, well for example like if you own half the company you can get way with yes. a lot yes uh, uh, the uh, but uh, not enough I mean, there's, I mean if you were really interested in success you would look you don't really need those things mm-hmm. I mean I can tell you I've seen groups of people working who didn't all have exactly the same politics and truthfully it wasn't much of a problem mm-hmm. well of course that was a different era perhaps you know things are more polarized now or something uh, I mean, I remember occasionally having long arguments with people, but I, I don't remember anybody going away mad.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, I remember people who would, like when I was working at Hughes aircraft, somebody would say, well, you know, the Soviet Union, they're not really much different than the United States. I said, well, actually they are. <laughs> I mean, not that we're perfect. Mm-hmm. And there are things in which we're not as different as we ought to be. But yes, there actually are differences. Like, you know, let's wander around and look for the the signs of the mass grave here at the edge of the, of the plant, because mm-hmm. I could find it in Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. Although well, it wouldn't be brand new. Uh, yeah. This was, you know, not at that point. That's more of a stalin time thing. But, you know, they say things like that. I mean, some of them. But, you I'll say it. But, you know, no, I mean, I knew one guy who was a Trotskyist. And he said, well, I can't work on any defense projects. Like, I said, well, <laughs> then you probably should have worked somewhere else. Yeah. That's pretty much all we do. You shouldn't be a Trotskyist working uh, for a defense uh, uh, company. Well, I've known other guys who were Trotskyites that, you know, managed to find something to do. uh, uh I don't know why I ran into so many trust At Any rate, uh, but uh, uh, but you know, as long as you'd show up and do it, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, my experience of aerospace was, uh, you know, it would be a bad thing if you were an enemy agent. That would get you in <laughs> trouble if they ever caught you. Were but, they you afraid
0: know, you might be an enemy agent? Did they look for signs and how you dressed and what you listened to for music? That all of your they did
1: look enough. Well, for example, there was a guy at Hughes Radar. Was about 60 and he got divorced and he got a stewardess 19 year old girlfriend and started living down by the marina, mm-hmm. which is very expensive. Ah! And people said, Well, how did all how did he manage all that? I said, Well, selling these radar secrets is probably the main reason why he managed to do it. Uh, so, yeah, you have to be you know, have to pay attention to things. Uh, but I don't think they do a very good job. By the way. I've never heard uh, all the guys who are supposed to do security there. I don't think I've never heard of any that were very good. Uh, uh, I don't think they. They put good people on it. Uh, it's kind of a you know lower class job to be the security guys. I I mean I think there's certain obvious things like they might catch you if you were a hopeless drunk and fall down a lot. Mm-hmm. But I think they're terrible. Uh, I mean you know we have these famous examples of guys who go for years you know deep inside the CIA working for somebody else like mm-hmm. Aldrich James. I don't think they're very good at catching.
0: So the Chinese out. probably have all of our military secrets, at least all of their technological
1: secrets. A lot. I don't know about all. I mean, there's stuff which is sort of voluminous. I mean, like you could say we have lots and lots of data from previous nuclear tests, which would be useful to somebody who wanted to do something, design nuclear weapons or something. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of it. And it might be that they don't, they never got their hands on it. I mean, I don't. Then again, maybe they have. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you know, some it's easier if there's a whole lot of stuff. It's harder to steal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I mean, you know, one of the questions on that is. Uh, you know, like we're no longer allowed to – I'm trying. were we ever allowed? Yeah, probably. We're no longer allowed to, like, make rational judgments on whether certain people are more or less likely to be uh, spies or things like that. I mean, what a few things. Like, like they look at things like uh, – or one of my friends say they always re- respond to the last scandal. I said, you know, if the guys were communists, like in the Manhattan Project, well, then you don't want to hire communists. And then if later the guys did it for money, they'd look for people – who are, you know, desperate for money. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, says, "But if the new problem is something else, we're still looking at the last one. But uh, I don't think we're very good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't think we've ever been very good at it. Uh, uh, but, uh, no, Teller had an interesting strategy. The idea is simply invent things so fast they can't keep up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can actually take longer to uh, reverse engineer something sometimes than to do it yourself. Uh, the Russians routinely reverse-engineered American computers. They had a group, one group that reversed-engineered IBM. They had another group that reversed-engineered DEC. Mm-hmm. But when those were the two main computer manufacturers. And they were always behind, and they, and they got to be more behind with time. But uh, they, they weren't catching up. Uh, so and The thing is, of course, this is harder for us because generally most really useful technical things are kind of slowed down. So it's hard... Like you know, when they talk about the third world catching up, it's mostly because we're, we've slowed down, so they can catch up. I mean, if we were inventing things faster, than China would be falling behind, right? Yeah. And it's, assuming they weren't doing the same thing, but in general, a lot of important things have kind of slowed down, and uh, I think that's one reason for you know the technical gap between the rest parts of the rest of the world has not everywhere, but parts have narrowed. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the uh, uh, but you know like. Uh,
0: we now talk about Greg's successful prediction that a lot of humans have Neanderthal DNA.
1: Now that we had some Neanderthal admixture, when that yes, came yes. out, there was a—I the first time I heard of it—it it was an American Physical Anthropology conference in Albuquerque in 2010. Mm-hmm. That's sort of conference I will sometimes go to, you know, if it's like if I just have to drive five minutes to get there, mm-hmm. and, there were people who had reviewed the paper, so they were, it was leaking from them. So, right. so John Hawks was there. He was a friend of mine, and we'd written paper saying this had to happen, and it did, and we were right, and I didn't feel bad.
0: Yeah, that but was about a...
1: Iraq, I had many predictions come true, and I felt bad about every one of them.
0: Well, I actually have a question about the Neanderthal thing. I've wondered, so if, what percent are um, non-Africans? What percent generally do they have Neanderthal DNA?
1: Uh, it's not a lot. Uh, it's, uh, sort of the order one and a half to 2%. It okay. varies a little bit. Okay, so
0: what I don't get is, I've heard we're like 98% the same as chimps. So how could it, that seems it's too high that we have, like... Well,
1: let's, let's, let's work on this, because that's a, a question, it's a little complicated, but I think you can come up with a complete answer to it. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Like, next question, is what would it mean to be the same? Suppose you have a long stretch, and it's basically you know, numbers, we we can express these uh, nucleotides as, you know, one through four, right? Okay, sure. Uh, You have long stretches. Uh, And suppose you said, well, here, this long stretch is the same in chips as it is in humans. I said, that's Mm -hmm. good. What if we have another long stretch, but there's another thing stuck in the middle of it? Mm -hmm. But the rest of it's the same. How do you measure exactly how different that is? Or suppose there's something that sometimes there's two copies of, and some people have three copies, and some people have four, and all chimps have two. Mm-hmm. It's actually a little hard. You can come up with mathematical definitions of how different it is. Okay, right. but uh, uh, the way the way you talk about Neanderthals, you say we can find even if this suppose we have this stretch that's 50 mm-hmm. kilobytes long, mm-hmm. but we can tell by the pattern. You know, it's a haplotype is a pattern. It's like a hand of cards. Mm-hmm. You said I have this, 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 sort a certain pattern. And if you have the same pattern, one that's only slightly changed, you can say, well, you know, this pattern here has a common origin with this pattern in this other individual. Okay. So we can say, we can find patches where here's this pattern. Most people have X or some, some people have X, but the pattern was characteristic of Neanderthals in that section. Now, much of that pattern is, you know, it's a long pattern. Some of it is the same as in humans, okay. but you can identify this whole piece.
0: Oh, I, I see. Okay.
1: Okay, so it doesn't mean it's different in every way, but it is, you can say this was a Neanderthal chunk. Just okay. as I could say a piece of text, that's a, even if the text, like I could say, here, here's a better example. Here's a piece of text from uh, one edition of a book, mm-hmm. and it's a translation, so there's little differences. Right. And here's another uh, version of that same page, and it's a little different. Mm-hmm. It's mostly the same, but it's a little different. You can say this is the one that came from that book. Mm-hmm. You know, so one some came from translation A, some came from translation B. Okay. Now, for, people have done this odd thing where they create a new book, which by shuffling uh, pages from these books, to, to some to some extent, mm-hmm. you can say this part of book C is from book A. Now it's right. mostly the same as in A or B, but if you look at the pattern, you can see it was it's either exactly or close, very close to the same as it was in A. So this this paragraph is from the A version. Okay. Even though it's not very different from the B version, you can still tell it's different. You know, like there's three words different or certain words in a certain order, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Okay, so you can say, even though many, look, I mean, if you just look at our, is the enzyme basically the same? There's lots of things that are pretty similar between humans and a banana. Yeah. Okay, not everything, but, you know, a lot of basic Mm -hmm. enzymes that, you know, how do you break down sugar to get energy, that kind of thing? Mm They're not very different. Uh, But... But there are differences here and there, and they accumulate, and the way they're regulated accumulate, and so forth. Anyway, so if you look at the, you can find enough segments that you can identify as neanderthal that you end up saying the amount of neanderthal mixture is about this much, which is on the order of 1.5 to 2%. It varies a little. It looks like as people, this is hot off the presses. I think I read it two days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, as people moved at first out of Africa, they did some admixture mixture with neanderthals. Mm-hmm. Not surprising. We knew there were some in the Middle East. That's where, you, that's where you run into them first. And then later in different areas there were two uh, there was one extra which is there for the ancestors of both Europeans and North Asians, but not for people in say uh, New Guinea. Mm-hmm. They have some, but only from that first admixture. There's a second small admixture that seems to have been added to the ancestors of both Europeans and uh, East Asians. And then there's a third which was just to East Asians. So the Chinese have a little, you know, if, if, if the number is one and a half in Europe, it might be two in, uh, in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also, if we're talking New Guinea and the Belizeans and Australian Aborigines, they got a bigger mixture from the Denisovans, these eastern guys, mm-hmm. oh, sort of the eastern cousins of the Anatol. And other Asians got a little, maybe seven-tenths of a percent, but, but in uh, places like New Guinea, it's maybe as much as five percent. Or four, four or five percent uh so that's what we know right now and there's also indications that some guys in africa mixed with something something different we mm-hmm. we don't have with both denisovans and we actually have ancient samples we can compare mm-hmm. with these african ones we don't and we may not get it because these tropical climates are bad for this for preserving things right and so uh uh but at any rate, there's indications that both the Bushmen and the Pygmies mixed with somebody else, somebody who was more divergent than the Neanderthals or the Denisovans. Somebody who might have split off perhaps a million years ago, so somewhat oh. different. It,
0: I mean, it, is this a really big deal in terms of how, you know, our genotype? Is this, is this, is this likely to have big consequences? It has. Some, or I mean,
1: but do we not it, know? But, uh, we know. But the things that matter the most is suppose the Neanderthals, for example, had a gene that was useful in some way
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and that, that wasn't in Africa. It might, for example, that might be particularly likely if it's dealing with some problem that isn't really there in Africa but it is where the Neanderthals live. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you have even a little bit of admixture and that gene gives you an advantage, then it will, its frequency will grow with time and you can get to the point where lots of people have it Right. Even, or even most. We know of some examples like that. And so some of those confer useful things like... In HLA molecules, which are involved in, you know, very varied molecules, which are involved in recognizing pathogens and dealing with them, mm-hmm. uh, MHC, you know, it's also the things that have to match for a transplant to work. Okay. okay. There are certain NHA, uh, NHC, uh, uh, genes where as much as half of them are a Neanderthal form in, in Eurasians. Mm-hmm. And there are other ones where a lot of them appear to be a Denisovan form, particularly in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, another example, uh, there are, uh, uh, this is sort of naturally, like if, if there's local diseases and the antiphals are ready for them, their genes would be useful yes. in dealing with uh, local diseases. It looks like, in fact, uh, there was a paper out just a couple of days ago, which the guy says he thinks there was sort of a pattern in which the the diseases were carried, you know, somewhat different diseases that were carried by the antiphals, but they also had genes that protected you from those diseases. So they were the Neanderthals were both the poison and the cure. Oh, so you you know once you mix with Neanderthals, some of you had the capacity to better survive the diseases that you caught from the Neanderthals.
0: So it was very bad from Neanderthal's viewpoint to intermix with us,
1: because. Uh, Well, they probably picked up some stuff from us, too, but mostly they seem to have been extinguished before that went too far. But we now know one example. Like, there was sort of an early expansion out of Africa around 100,000, 120,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. We have found some sort of modern-looking skeletons in the Near East. This was a warm period. Mm -hmm. And then then it got colder again, the Neanderthals replaced them again. But it looks like there was some admixture there because we have found some Neanderthal skeletons from Central Asia that are old, but after this time, and they have a little bit of human DNA, a percent or two, in it, modern humans. Uh-huh. So it goes both ways. But here's an example of how useful it can be. I'll give you two useful examples. Sure. There's also probably examples we don't understand that well. By the way, it didn't change everything in sight, or people in Eurasia would be infinitely different from people in Africa. They're not, mm-hmm. but they're some different. It depends on it. The, like, there is a, 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 a version of a gene that helps of Tibetans do well at high altitudes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's different from the way uh, for example, people in the Andes do it. People uh, you know, like if you move to a high altitude, you would end up having a higher red blood count. Mm-hmm. And if you had done it from when you were a kid, you tend to have a deep chest. Mm-hmm. Those are responses people have. In the Andes it looks kind of like that, but it's more so. It's not just an individual response. There have been genetic changes, but it's kind of the same direction. Mm-hmm. But Tibetans don't have those deep chests and they don't have the super high red count. They have do other things and those other things work better. As you get older, your adaptations, if you're an Indian Indian, they are starting to flake out. Mm-hmm. You're starting more and more people are getting altitude sickness as they get older. Their babies are they tend to be too small. Mm-hmm. The Tibetan, Tibetan babies are like half a kilogram heavier or something. The Tibetans do it differently. Uh-huh. Now, one of the ways they do it di- differently is they have a you know a, a gene version that that helps keep the red cells from getting too common, uh, and that because you can get strokes and things is basically the way that could pay off poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Tibetan the Tibetan form of the gene is from the Denisovans. In other words, the reason is is there were earlier. Before modern humans, there were other guys who lived at least at the outskirts of Tibet for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And during that very long time, some of them got better adapted to height than the Indians ever did, because the Indians haven't been there nearly as long. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a maximum of it's like 10,000, 15,000 years, probably less, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. Americas. But people, have, there have been, you know, like you could have things go all the way back to Homo erectus. That You know, there have been homo erectus in Asia for 2 million years. So you expect that some of them got better at standing altitude. Yeah. And then other people, more modern people, bred with them. And today, Tibetans owe some of their superior altitude adaptation to the fact they're not entirely human. (laughs) Although, you know, lots of us aren't entirely human, but the question is whether particular things you pick up from those guys turn out to be useful in Modern circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, which is recently found, they found, uh, and this is another Denisovan thing. Uh, it's around at moderate frequencies in some parts of Asia, but it's up. To, it's a hundred percent Greenland Eskimos. It's something that has. I think it changes the way you. Uh, there, you have a thing called brown fat, which is a uh, you know mm-hmm. something that looks kind of like fat, but it's there just to gener- to burn up calories and generate heat.
0: Oh right, you, you can you can develop that if you expose yourself to cold.
1: Well, it varies in how much it does it. Anyhow, there's a different pattern of this. That there's a gene that affects this that that essentially every green Eskimo has. It tends to it probably keeps them warmer. Mm-hmm. Okay. It also tends to make you kind of shorter and broader, mm-hmm. which they are. Uh, and that's you no. Know, I was I particularly enjoyed this because, for example, on that Tibetan question, I had for about four years. I was telling people mainly on my blog. I said, you know, there's a pretty good chance that Tibetans. Would have picked up archaic, you know, from archaic humans, earlier versions of humans, mm-hmm. uh, altitude adaptations because they were there so long. And the other side, the other reason is because the Tibetan adaptation works so much better.
0: Yeah.
1: The odds are that, it and so after about, th- I kept saying this, and I had a couple people read it, and then when somebody finally looked, and they said, "Oh yeah, it is there." <laughs> uh, they said, "Who would have thought that?" I said, "Oh yeah." Uh, I was a little sarcastic in my response, but. Uh, uh, there's other things which, uh, you know, something is happening, but I don't think it's very well understood. There's several genes that, that involve keratin, you know, that protein in skin and hair, mm-hmm. in which Neanderthal versions are fairly common in I think Europeans and possibly Asians, and they may have something to do with why some people have, you know, uh, you know, not quite as curly hair as Africans. I don't, but I don't think the details are understood. But it's there. I mean, they're Neanderthal. Ver- Another thing is. They're Neanderthal versions of genes involving fats in the brain that are fairly common in Europeans. Mm-hmm. What does this do? I don't think anybody knows. It does something. Uh, so there's a few things. Are, the things that they probably know the best about are things that look like they're involved in d- disease defenses. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of obvious that there would be an advantage. There's going to be local diseases. You know, people have been there a long time will have local defenses. But altitude, you know, there's places in Alt- Africa that are kind of high, but there's no place like Tibet. Right. Ethiopians have some altitude adaptations, and I will bet you money, if we ever can find ancient DNA to check, that some of those Ethiopian altitude adaptations are very old, older than modern humans, but but I, no, you couldn't prove it yet.
0: Why, you, why do you think it wasn't the Ethiopians that developed them? Why do you think they, they got no, it through?
1: Uh, because if they're old enough, they're going to be better, and then the, a new species coming along, modern humans will integrate a little bit and pick them up. Okay. That's basically it. Uh, other things like this happen like somebody was noticing the Tibetan Mastiffs are better at standing altitude mm-hmm. than other dogs and why? it turns out because they've interbred with Tibetan wolves mm-hmm. and Tibetan wolves have been up there you know, for millions of years mm-hmm. they're better at it now if you put dogs up there and if they didn't die out and, and if they never interbred with anything they'd eventually develop it themselves but it might take a long time for a good you know, really superior version mm-hmm. it's quicker to just steal it from somebody who's already there that has mm-hmm. already developed it. I mean, so for example, if people could only breed with kangaroos, they'd probably pick up all kinds of good things for Australia. Yeah. But I, there was a movie about that. It, I believe it was uh, werewolves, but they were marsupial <laughs> werewolves in Australia because they had pouches. Uh, uh, but uh, at any rate, so people have picked up some things. And by the way, I mentioned that the pygmies and bushmen mm-hmm. are, look like they picked up some things. I don't think I know what they do yet, but they're probably some of them are probably useful. Uh, like it's possible that some of the genes that make you short might be from that, uh, you know, in pygmies. Might, some of them might be from this other group, assuming that the other group was living in the same areas in mm-hmm. the forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we have found, we've picked up some useful things. Nothing deeply earth-shaking. I used to wonder if, you know, there'd be something to change behavior, and there might be. But I don't think it's been proved. Uh, but uh, but there are others. There's altitude. There's uh, I would predict that you would probably find other things like how much iodine. Is, you know, there's places in the world that are short in iodine. I bet you there are gene variants that help you deal with it, mm-hmm. at least partially. Uh, you know, so you know, so we have found some useful things we picked up from Neanderthals, the uh, uh, and there are probably some more. But, you know, the list can't be incredibly long, uh, uh, because we would know, but, uh, because we don't, you know, most things aren't incredibly different between Africans and non-Africans. Some things are, mm-hmm. uh, most things are not. Uh, there is a, uh, Of course, couldn't a, it, g- couldn't
0: we yeah. have picked up something really useful and then it, the genes were transported back and it, all mankind got them? I mean, if something That's was useful impossible. enough, right? I mean,
1: there's been, there's been a fair amount of movement back into Africa, mm-hmm. uh, We now know that, uh, particularly in East Africa, I mean, up in in Ethiopian Highlands, you can pretty much tell by looking. The people look kind of like a mix between uh, more standard, uh, darker East Africans and people in the Middle East, and when people have done genetics, that's exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some of this goes farther than you would think. There were people who moved in the Middle East and they brought in agriculture and uh, animal husbandry, Mm -hmm. and some of them wandered a long way, continuing to mix. So there are Bushmen that have like a couple of percent of something out of the Middle East. Uh-huh. That's how far this went. Now, I think there are small amounts that people like the Bantu, but not as much as that, mm-hmm. just a little. But even then, you know, if it was something useful, uh, one of the principles here is if you mix with another population and you get, suppose, only a few hundred copies of all their genes, you know, mm-hmm. because a few hundred people mixed, uh, if they are... Potentially useful. That's enough that you will probably get the useful ones. I mean, though. I mean, like if you only had one copy, there'd be a fair chance that it would be lost by chance. Right. You got a few, a few hundred. It's almost assuming it's useful in your situation, it'll eventually uh, become common. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is so. Yeah, that was another thing. Again, this is not a new idea, and it's known. There are many examples are known, but the people working in paleontology and human genetics apparently didn't know it. So, they would say, even if we did mix a little with the it probably didn't matter. And the answer is, if they had anything useful, and we mixed even a little, the odds are we got it. Yeah. So, uh, that's, that was a paper John Hawks and I wrote. We were saying that uh, if there was even a little bit of a mixture, which we thought was likely. By the way, there were all kinds of fun things people said. Well, you know, people wouldn't have done that. It would have been too dis- <laughs> too, too gross. And I said, okay.
0: Yeah, that's inconsistent with how people act today. I said, have you ever
1: known anybody in a fraternity? (laughs) Uh, Have you even watched Animal House? I mean, really, is there anything you've... uh, I heard people say that, though. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I also heard other people... No, they were just one. They said probably they were too different, and so we were sterile. And the odds were against that, because we know... We we look at other pairs of species that have diverged, Mm -hmm. and we know... Well, typically, how long it takes before they start to have trouble uh, interbreeding, and it's longer than, than this time. It was like it's often typically like more than a, well over a million years, a couple billion years usually. Like between lions and tigers, there they're partially uh, like they can have uh, they can have their male offspring are sterile, their female offspring are usually not. Mm-hmm. So they're partly separated, but they're about two million years apart. Well, and
0: Neanderthals didn't split that long ago. What, what do you think caused us to end up beating the Neanderthals? Why do you think they went extinct?
1: I don't think we know. And it's possible to come up with a lot of possible explanations. I mean, for example, what if we had a disease that we were fairly resistant to that was very bad for them? That could be very significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, that was a... Except it was more than just one disease. It was many diseases, but that's part of the explanation for the European success compared to the American Indians. Mm. It's not the whole story, but it's a good part of it. Yeah. Uh, so that's important uh did that happen i don't know uh but you know if we cloned the neanderthal and everybody sneezes on him and he dies i said then we might know well
0: actually i um, wrote a, an article suggesting that we should clone the neanderthals that if, if we you know we wipe them out we kind of morally owe it to them then there's reparations yeah well bringing them back would be i think enough no you'd be opposed They're, to bringing their, their lawyers would say otherwise oh okay how smart think, do you think they would be if we? What would your guess of their IQ? I don't
1: know. Uh, also, if you do it wrong, it'll be higher than ours.
0: <laughs> how would it be higher than ours? Yeah, I remember in your blog. But why do you? How would it, how would it be higher than ours?
1: Well, I, I I I this was sort of theory, but I now have more reason to believe it than I did. Okay, uh, there are sort of different ways in which genes, you know, in which gene having different genes can affect, cause differences in intelligence. Mm -hmm. Okay. One is you can just say, like imagine you just said, like this guy had a gene that tends to make his brain bigger, uh, and some people have it, some people don't. Okay. Right. And and if you had both around, you would probably know, both around at reasonable frequencies, neither does anything really bad or tremendously better, at Mm -hmm. least over in the past, because if they did, one of them would go all the way to... Nearly 100 percent. So they have to be pretty similar in their impact. Like maybe the people have bigger brains. Maybe they have, a, maybe they have to eat a little more. Maybe they have a little more difficulty in birth. Right. You know, maybe it's, ba- it's you know roughly balanced. Okay. Then there's other things which are just plain bad. You know, some gene involved in developing the brain or something, and it just doesn't work right. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you have those? The answer is mutations are always happening, and then they gradually get eliminated, but not instantly. So at any given moment, you have quite a few. So it's like, you know, it's the noise of the system. Mm-hmm. There's always a certain amount of noise in the system. Right. Now, we were, we've been looking for genes that affect IQ, and they had found a fair number of the first kind. I mean, not so much brain volume, but, you know, they do something, but mm-hmm. they, they don't have, they're not hugely good or bad because they have intermediate frequencies. But, but, but that was only explaining part of what, the heritability we saw, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of recent papers that indicate that the rest of it is the noise, and so it's how many bad genes you have. Now, those are essentially always rare. Like, your brother might have some of the same ones, but mm-hmm. somebody across the street probably will have entire... He'll have some, too, but not the same ones. Right. So the first ones can be common. You can have, you know, 60% of people have the slightly bigger brain version. 40% have the other one that makes you... has some slight advantage of another sort to balance it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the pure bad ones, they're, uh, that's like, uh, what, was it... Uh, uh, come to think of it, I finally found a good use for this quote happy families are all alike but all the unhappy families are different Tolstoy <laughs> oh
0: yeah yeah, that, make, that fits in you're right
1: yes but you know possibly for the only time in his life Tolstoy is right uh, uh, that's yes I have to remember that at any rate so the point is suppose you know when you have these ancient DNA things mm-hmm. they're you know we can't recover them perfectly they have errors you have to be careful you don't want those errors I mean they could it can be bad. You know, we clone somebody, you have errors in them. It's like mutations there. It could be, you could even kill them.
0: Right, okay. right. Okay.
1: So I had suggested once that if you had several different Neanderthal samples, and I, in our, our number of samples is slowly growing. You know, and part of this because what we used to consider a good skeleton is something that looks like a good skeleton. But today, if we have a tiny piece of bone, but it has good DNA, mm-hmm. that's better than a whole skeleton. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there are things that we probably just, Threw away as trash in the past that people are re examining. And they'll also be gathered in the gathering where we wearing gloves and everything so it's not to contaminate. Anyhow, we probably are, we have some Deanitho samples, we'll probably get more. Mm-hmm. And if you had some sort of averaging procedure, that might be a way to try to, so that if you've misread a base, that, you know, well, if we look at three ones, we're not probably going to make the same mistake on each three. Right. But see, if you're not careful and you would accidentally remove all the rare stuff,
0: then yeah, they'll.
1: You've accidentally made Neanderthals yes. that are wildly smarter than any Neanderthal ever actually was <laughs> because we removed the genetic noise. By my point is we we always have stories, movies with somebody who gets superpowers by accident. Yes, we could do you it. Neanderthal. You get bitten by a radioactive spider or something. Yeah. I said, well, one of the nice things is here you you can have a geneticist create something superhuman by accident. Yeah. It's more fun if it's by accident.
0: Oh, definitely.
1: Yes. And so, no, I don't know how smart they were. I mean, we know certain things they could do. We know there's a bunch of things modern humans did they didn't do. Although some of those things, you know, there's some overlap. Like they seem to have made a kind of like decorative jewelry or something. With like the talons of, they made things out of maybe a necklace or something out of the talons of things like eagles mm-hmm. or hawks. We know uh, it does not look like they they didn't bury people in fancy ways Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean like even the 100,000 year old guys they might bury you with some uh, objects that seem to have some sort of meaning. yeah the Antifols didn't do that Uh, I got flack in in the book I wrote I compared it says when they buried somebody it was probably the way we would flush a goldfish down the toilet (laughs) so they they weren't spiritual probably there's no real sign of it but we don't know or maybe they weren't artistic you don't see them We haven't found only a very little. Some of the things that look like personal ornaments, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, uh, and there's things that would seem to be obvious they don't seem to have done. Uh, Like if you live in a place that's cold, one way to store food is just to put it in a hole and let it freeze. Right. Eskimos do this sometimes. And the other thing is it sort of naturally leaves the occasional fossil if you do this. Mm Mm-hmm. But we've never found it with Neanderthals, it's like they never figured it out. Okay. Or maybe they had another way, I don't know. But there's their tools didn't change as much, you know, they'd stay the, you know, if you go back in time, there were tools in Africa that would stay the same for like half a billion years, only gradually the things start changing faster. The Neanderthals were still in a period, in a state where things changed pretty slowly. You could go 50,000 years you'd have trouble telling that anything had happened in mm-hmm. terms of the tools. Mm-hmm. Well, Modern humans, they changed things just, like, after a while, they changed things just to be different from their neighbors. Even not functionally, wildly better, just different. Mm-hmm. You'd have regional things. Uh, but also things were changed. They did a lot more new things when they moved in, And they were better at being hunter-gatherers. The population density went up maybe four or five times when modern humans replaced Neanderthals. Oh, okay. They did things like they had traps to catch rabbits and if the antith- I'm not saying the animal never ate a rabbit, but they did Just never found any of these traps. Uh, and you know, there's other things that are very productive. And they, uh, like, if you want to, you have a salmon run. You can harvest lots of salmon and dry them and eat them all year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We know pe- that some later people did that, but I don't see any sign, no sign of the Neanderthal. Anyhow, yeah, probably more primitive. But there seems to have been a period in which they kind of overlapped. The Neanderthals. You see, you know, Neanderthal technology, but it's sort of mixed with the. Uh, the new newer stuff, uh, but but you know there were so many different ways. Like suppose we're in a situation where you know there are tribal fights and modern humans win more often than not. Right. For there could be so many reasons for that. Uh, uh, what if they had uh, projectile weapons and the anatomals didn't, well, the way the anatomals probably didn't? I'm not absolutely sure that modern humans did, but they did eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, at and eventually the bow and arrow and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if they had better ways of food preservation? That counts after all, you cra- if you could just you just produce more people per square mile, you eventually crowd the other guys out. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of possibilities. Uh, you know, like if humans could talk better, like one thing we know is Neanderthals did not do much trade, but modern humans did. so there are certain kinds of stone that people like to make into a certain kind of weapon, and they might trade it, you know several hundred kilometers mm-hmm. And that is seen even in Africa a little earlier. And I don't think Neanderthals did that. So I was thinking, what if that means you're talking to other groups more? What if occasionally you could get a coalition of three tribes against one Neanderthal tribe? And Mm -hmm. suppose that that they can't really do that.
0: Yeah. Well, this trade itself would give you a big
1: advantage.
0: No. No? You don't think? I mean, trading, if you need a certain kind of stone or, or rock for making a weapon... It the ones I read right about,
1: it doesn't look to me like it made much difference. They were more okay. like just colorful. Oh, okay. There was certain kinds. Uh, in fact, I was thinking, you know, if you think of trade, let's talk of trade up into uh, uh, classical times. Mm-hmm. Most of it is uh, uh, practically pretty useless. Okay. Not all of it, but most of it. I mean, most of it is for display things for rich guys. Uh, I mean, uh, the exception of that is probably tin, mm-hmm. particularly in the Bronze Age where you didn't have iron, right. but you know, tin is tin is hard to get. It was often traded a long way, and the things you make with it are genuinely useful. But I think, uh, uh, like one of the things that was traded all over the Middle East was lapis lazuli. It all comes from one place in uh, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Still, okay. You think we think it would have really mattered if they didn't have it?
0: Yeah, if it's just decorative stuff, it wouldn't be
1: important. The great, I mean, if you think of the things that uh, were traded in. You know, up in Roman times. I don't think many of them were very useful. And, by the way, after a while, they stopped. Uh, Because a lot of it was, you know, know, Roman officials at some place are, you know, ask, you know, it's like ordering a pizza from your hometown. Mm -hmm. But after a while, you you, you don't have to get Italian wine. You have to settle for French wine. Mm -hmm. If you're running gall, that's actually not having to settle very much. In fact, it might be an improvement. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the the amount of stuff being shipped dropped a lot. It went way up. It peaked around 100 AD and then it went way down. People got more self-sufficient. I mean, like, people found their own way to make uh, uh, fermented fish sauce. Why? I'll never understand. <laughs> uh, but but actually, you know, like, I've heard people say, well, what are all the practical reasons for getting spices? I said, because you're bored. Cause you want something to taste different." Like, people said, well, the spices were probably antibacterial. I said, probably not. Hmm. I mean, I doubt if nobody's ever shown that you know, like you're healthier if you put pepper on things or something. Uh, but I, I think, like, what were the major things that people imported in Roman times? Uh, spices from the Far East. Mm-hmm. I claim it wouldn't have mattered if none of them had existed. Yeah. Uh, I'm not positive about that, but I suspect it. Uh, silk from China. That was a popular thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it was so popular it, was, it caused a trade deficit. They worried that all the gold was going to sort of drain out to China. Uh, but how many things were genuinely useful? I said, 10, although it's not as, you know, you of iron, it's not as important as it used to be. But what else? I mean, that's, you know, lot of it? What of it that, you know, cures a disease, makes you live longer, feeds you, gives you better tools, lets you fight a war better, you know, a lot of practical things. I don't think there was very much. Uh, in fact, trade, in a way, trade was, it was basically a way of spreading disease. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I mean, there were diseases that didn't used to, like smallpox, Was it wasn't there at classical times. Nobody talks about it, and they would. You know, there's not mm-hmm. a single uh, statue or anything that shows people with that kind of scars on their face. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came later, uh, and uh, there were other things like that that weren't always there. Beasles didn't always, ex- didn't used to exist in the Roman times.
0: Yeah, you've and written was, how that played a big role in warfare, that it was possible for the Romans to have much bigger armies because... Well,
1: longer-term armies, too. They can yeah. campaign for years. Yeah, I, I, I've talked about this. I've never seen anybody else talk about it. I think it's kind of important. Like, in later times, you know, it was always that most of the casualties were due to disease up right. until after the... I think the first one that wasn't true was the Russo-Japanese War. Mm-hmm. It's a long... You know. Yeah, it's a long uh, time. But, uh, but, I was, but the Romans, you know, they'd send down armies, they'd be campaigning for years. And, you know, they had certain things they did right. They did camp sanitation right. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they would build deep latrines and things, and they did certain things right in the cities, like they had aqueducts. They would have fairly pure water, but that shouldn't have saved them from smallpox. Right. And, and when smallpox showed up, it didn't save them. There are two epidemics. Uh, one of them was, you know, the Antonine plague, and then the plague of Cyprian, which are about twenty years apart. And people generally figure that one of them is uh, smallpox and the other is. Is measles, I'm not sure which is which. Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, uh, I mean, it's sort of like a permanent tax. If you start saying you know, were gonna have every one in every ten kids die before they grow up, when that didn't used to be true, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, population was shrinking all all over the classical world for centuries. It just kept, You know, like what used to be a city after a while, someplace like, uh, you know, Turkey, it's only just the, uh, it's a fort. That's all you know. The fort in the center is all that's left. There's no city there anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and other things. You know, they managed to get the Black Plague under Justinian, right? Uh, uh, so uh, if they had no trade, of course, would it any would have happened eventually, anyhow. And then it would have. Then you would have wished it had happened earlier.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but, would have happened uh, to conquest at
1: least. Uh, there were some things that happened from that one conquest that, uh, in history. I mean, it looks like. The Hittites got some sort of nasty epidemic from conquering a bunch of people in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I don't know what it was, but you know it's something they complained about a lot. Claimed killed a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, I mean trade is sort of interesting for transmitting techniques and ideas, but the trade itself was, I think, in the old days, not terribly useful. It was almost all display. Well, what about? I mean, the the value
0: of specialization that through trade someone could you know, specialize in making one good, being very good at making swords, and then sell them throughout the, the trading uh, network.
1: There was a little of that, but part of the problem was uh, you couldn't have too much. The Problem was this transportation was so expensive mm-hmm. that you know only a few things, like typically high value things, and there were other there were places where you could make it work, but it was kind of you know like you could ship grain from Egypt to Rome, right. The reason you could do that is because the Nile, you, know, you have a natural canal right through the middle mm-hmm. of the grain growing area and then you could take the Mediterranean the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. But like if you were growing grain, let's say in central France, there was really no way to get it to Rome. It was as if it, it was on another planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even if you had roads, uh, I saw an estimate that it cost as much to... Uh, if you were going 70 miles on a Roman road, those, those were good roads cost about as much as crossing the Mediterranean a ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, so, uh, uh, but specialization. Uh, you know, the places where there was actually commercial stuff happening were typically coastal. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or special exceptions like on a major river like the Nile. Yeah. So, the cities in the eastern Mediterranean were essentially all coastal cities. Alexandria, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Antioch, you know the Greek cities, mm-hmm. and the reason they could do anything, uh, I mean, you know, like there were people who you know made specialized pots or something, mm-hmm. you know, like like uh, like Athens, mm-hmm. uh, and they could make some money on it. You know, do I think they were terribly more useful? I think they were prettier, mm-hmm. but I don't think they were terribly more useful than something you made at home. Uh, but the, the reason they could have this economy is because it was, uh, you know, the economy was pretty much, coast, you know, it was transported by ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go very far inland, it doesn't really exist. Uh, and, uh, uh, uh so, it also meant, like, where are the places you could extract tax revenues from? I said, well, if we're growing wheat in France, we can't get it here, how much, what can we get out of there? I said, you might be able to recruit soldiers, that's about it. Mm-hmm. You, you can't, but what are the specialized things? I said, well, uh. There were guys. This is mostly later, but I think I'm trying to remember when they they were. There were people in India who made, you know, little pieces of steel that, you know, woots that people later made steel swords out of mm-hmm. uh, in the Middle East. And I think that might have happened in Roman times. There was trade with India. Uh, that went back to Hellenistic times. The there was some Greeks that figured out how to use the monsoon winds to go across the uh, Arabian Sea to India and back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know how much of it was useful, uh, specialized, uh, not much. Uh, I mean, a lot of it was things that don't, like, you know, spices, the spices that we often think of simply don't grow in the Mediterranean world. You know, pepper and nutmeg and things, they they don't grow there. Uh, So there it's absolute advantage, rather than relative advantage, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Right. But but if we're talking, uh, you know, uh, little pieces of steel, that's probably relative advantage. Local, well, there are guys who have their own techniques. Uh, they were, had better steel metallurgy in, in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Uh, boy, I mean, useful things. Uh, as I said, you know, bronze is special because you really need that. Uh, you, there really is a reason to go to copper, you know, which is fair. You know, that 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 was sort of what Cyprus did for a living was big copper. Mm-hmm. It still does, I think, or it still can. There's still copper there. I don't know if they mine it. Current prices, but tin could come from far away. Uh, but you know, in the Iron Age, uh, that's kind of probably one of the reasons civilization was falling apart because you don't need to do all these complicated trade routes and things. Mm-hmm. Not, not you don't need it as you can field an army without it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what were the things that you benefited from? Uh I mean, since most of, I said, you know, like grain going from Egypt to, uh, to Rome, that's just stolen. <sighs> I mean, they're not. they said, "You're getting the wonders of having the Romans tell you what to do." That's you're just lucky that way. Right. Uh, what else? Uh, they got some grain out of North Africa, but again, close to the coast, places like Tunisia. I'm trying to think, well, what were the places where this sort of this sort of specialization we think of is like these guys do X and we do Y and we're both better off at the end of it uh, I don't think there was a whole lot except, you could delicious County decorative things uh, I mean when garum was fermented fish sauce which, i mean I'm sure some people's fermented fish fish sauce was better than other people's <laughs> fermented fish sauce i guess uh well they talk about and wine I'm sure that's better than you know something from from france mm-hmm. uh uh I don't know. I can't think of any useful things. Uh, uh, there must have been a few. Uh, well, here would be a question. You know, the Romans were starting to have things like water wheels, right. water mills. Uh, might you import, you know, cup gears and things from somewhere else that 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 ends up being useful? You you could get you know you're getting work done if you build a, a water mill. Uh, I, I don't think there was. You know, the things that we assume are the basic reasons for things. I don't know if they happened all that much. I mean, I was reading about, somebody was talking about how Rome had low marginal tax rates and fairly good property security, and therefore technological innovation barely happened at all. Mm. <laughs> it's true, though.
0: Yeah, it is sort of a mystery of why there was so little innovation up until, like, the Industrial Revolution. What?
1: Uh, Hellenistic times did a fair amount.
0: Did, did they really though? Did they get, did they get better at making things that were important?
1: It stopped. Some of them were important. Uh, I would read. I put on my, I put on my special. Uh, I, actually, if this were a video, I would actually have a separate hat for okay. different subjects. This would be my history of technology hat. Okay. Uh, the uh, there are some things that were invented uh, that were significant in Hellenistic times and in classical Greek times. They invented. Uh, they invented gears. Mm-hmm. They invented the water wheel. I mean, the water bill. That was invented by them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a sense, you know, the t- territory they controlled may not have been the best possible place for it. There's a lot more vigorous streams in Northern Europe mm-hmm. than there is in the Middle East mm-hmm. or Greece, but they did have it. And the Romans after them had some of that, too. But they don't seem to have had enormous numbers. Uh, I mean, like, in medieval times, you know, th- every possible place that you could put a water bill. They had one. Uh, they're mentioned in the Domesday book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I forget, it was something like 4,000 or 6,000 in England. When William the Conqueror conquered it. You know, p- people thought it was the coolest thing in the world. You could get work for free. Yeah. They had title bills in Ireland. Quite a few of them. But, and the Romans had some, but, you know, this sort of thing, it's, I think it was considered, you know, it, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's like you know, how come we don't find a lot of Brahmins in India who are car repairmen? Right. Because you know they could be right, and it's probably not probably pays decently. Why don't they? Beca-? Because they don't want to become car repairmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's you're, you're doing things with by your hands. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, intellectuals in the in the Greek, Greek, Roman society, they kind of thought like that. Most of them, uh, you know, that's slaves should do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it was—I I think it's reemerging. I think more and more people who come out of elite colleges think that like anybody who did anything with his hands is kind of low. But but you can you have a better you're right in the middle of it. You can tell me what you if that's real. You could you can give a quiz to your class tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> Ask
0: them. Well, not. Um, I mean, certainly not engineers or you know our doctors or people there. It's certainly considered acceptable to build things.
1: I, I think engineering. I think engineer social prestige has dropped a lot. Since eighteen seventy
0: no, that, that I could don't, be wrong I don't have good information on that. I know Since a lot of engineers, long. and they don't seem to think they're of low social prestige compared to other they academics would, they would know. <laughs> yeah, that's true too
1: well all right uh,
0: they're paid more though engineer professors are paid more than professors in other fields pretty much
1: uh, I think the actual purchasing power of an engineering degree is has not gone up a lot. Over one of the reasons is things like H-1B. Oh
0: stuff. no, yeah, immigration. I'm sure is playing a role in that. Uh, but
1: but I also think so. Other things. There are things that weren't very big that have become big that are very prestigious. Perhaps not quite as prestigious as as 2007, but finance.
0: Yeah, well, finance. I mean,
1: finance, You know, banking and finance used to be considered. Well, you know, its prestige went way down after the Great Depression. It didn't come up for a very long time. Uh, and we were better off, by the way, when oh, this was through. No,
0: I agree. I mean, finance attracts a lot of our high IQ people, if I think far too many.
1: A few years back, it was like half of the Harvard graduate class expected to go into finance. Yes. Uh, 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 Steve Chu once, uh, I've probably said this before, but he, he, he was interested. As in He knew a lot of people who've been in physics and went off to be quants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they seemed to be having fun and making a lot of money. And he said... He quoted one of these guys said, "Well, now I'm finally in the real world." <laughs> and uh, uh, I sent Steve a picture of the Bikini H bomb test.
0: Oh yeah, that's the real world.
1: And I said, "That is the real world." Yeah. Physicists were already in the real world. I said, you know, anyth- anything anything about ten megatons is automatically <laughs> in the real world. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, Steve has somewhat changed his mind. Uh, partly because you know all those finance things have been so embarrassing, so many of them. Uh, you know, between the crooks and the uh, failures. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, speaking of an odd thing, I I had this, when I heard about Bernie Madoff, I remembered something odd, and I went back and dug it up. Uh, There had been an article in the Wall Street Journal in 1992, and they said somebody was selling unregistered securities and was saying you can get a steady 12%, and it sure seems flaky. They said, oh, no, it's okay, it's
0: Bernie.
1: (laughs) So they must have come that close to catching him in 92 And in fact, if I'd had the courage of my convictions, I should have said, nobody could give a steady 12%. I mean, how would they do that? The economy's not growing that fast. How is it possible? The answer is not. So uh, there were a few people who had figured this out, but nobody would listen to them. Right. Uh, That might be another interesting question of... uh, (coughs) That might be a useful role for economists if you found better ways to detect fraud.
0: Yeah, it could be, although... Yeah, my
1: sense would be it, that there's vastly more of it than, than you know.
0: Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell too, because some people will consistently, you know, beat the market and just by pure chance. So we can't really accuse them all of fraud.
1: After twenty years, it's at least worth looking. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, the uh, but there were people who were pretty sure. I mean, there were two categories. There was a couple of guys who kept said, "I know he's a fraud." They talked to the SEC. And the SEC would do nothing. Mm-hmm. There were some other guys who were big players, pretty smart, who said, I would never put my money in his hands. Mm-hmm. Now, that's all I need to know. Somebody else can worry about catching him.
0: Right.
1: It would actually have been sort of useful to catch him, but they didn't see that as their job. Yeah. So so there were some guys who thought like that, and they weren't wrong. Uh, it might be interesting to get a few of them drunk and say, well, what about the other guys? They haven't caught yet. Say, uh-huh. Well, like, I have a model for how... He- like, how can a hedge fund beat the... Uh, the uh, uh, the index funds
0: right yeah
1: I have I have a model what's your model, model insider trading
0: yeah you know I bet that's part of it It's I bet they do it often in a way where it's not illegal they they can go to the edge they know exactly what they're allowed to ask people I think they go way
1: past that they just don't get caught I mean by the way several of them have been caught doing this exact thing mm-hmm. but I think it's more than that uh, who are doing it uh, and uh, uh, but I think you'd you could probably detect a lot of it and just say they're doing too well. I mean, again, chance plays a role, but mm-hmm. look and see. You would at least have a group that was highly enriched for fraud. Another mm-hmm. uh, way is, of course, fiddling the books, so they aren't actually making that money. That was the Madoff approach, and I'm sure there are right. others doing that.
0: Right. Though uh, well, so, you're, you're more likely to get caught because you're the people giving you the money have an incentive to look for that.
1: But for example, at the peak, which was probably before 2008, or even it's gotten worse lately. <laughs> again, probably because there's too many uh, mm-hmm. hedge funds, uh, and even if there are things to do, they're all competing. After a while, they're all doing it, so returns go down. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, I... I you know, th- you made so much more money in these places that, you know, that they were sucking people, you know, who were physicists and mathematicians who should have been doing other things which are actually useful. Right. Uh, they were sucking a lot of them uh, uh, into this business. And other people, who, like I had... You know, my daughter finished her got her physics degree. She got oh, would you like to get into this finance program so you can you know become a master of the universe or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, she probably. I mean, as, as far as it involves doing math, she could have done it. She didn't want to do it, uh, but uh, but but a lot of people did. Uh, and I don't. Uh, I have talked to a few people like that. I mean, some of them because they say things like, "I am Ashkenazi. What do you think?" X about uh, <laughs> uh, like. You know, is uh, I I'm a carrier of X. Could that have any help me with certain things I seem to do well? I, to which I would say, maybe. Sure. Or somebody says I'm clinically depressed. Could strong selection have screwed us up? I said, maybe. Uh, uh, but some of them, and by the way, those people were actually pretty reasonable people. You could talk to them. And other people would be talking about. But you know, I think I'm really it's you know really doing wonderful things for the economy. And I said. I guess that's why you know real growth has almost stopped. Mm. Well, maybe you guys are stealing it all. That'd be a reason, but I don't think that's even that's it. Uh, uh, I, I was sort of skeptical. Uh, I mean, in terms of, I would say if you had one James Watt, he'd be worth a whole lot more than all the hedge funders ever born. Uh, by the way, we apparently don't have any James Watts, but we, you know, we did once, and maybe we could again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's odd. But what's the economist explanation for how we are siphoning so much in human capital to things that I can't help but think are fundamentally not terribly productive?
0: Well, you, you can see if you're, you know, if you're investing, you know, huge amounts of money, just being slightly better than someone else is worth a lot. And so that will attract, those professions will attract the smartest people.
1: But, you know, since, since you know, evidently you could make the case that the real changes in, uh, uh, in um, in per capita GMP and so forth have mm-hmm. been driven more by technical changes rather than you know if, like if we were all using stone tools mm-hmm. but 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 carefully uh, uh, you know doing uh, hedging and stuff mm-hmm. would that really be the reason you know why we were richer than the old days as opposed to you know like a world in which we used locomotives but didn't actually have uh, didn't use derivatives yet. No, for I mean, I,
0: yeah, I think overall it's it's not efficient, but you, you can argue that it lowers the rate of borrowing for companies if we have a good financial sector, and so it allows them to invest in more in R&D, and they can hire more engineers, and they're willing to take more chances. But they don't. Well, we don't know compared to the alternative, would they? Maybe they'd be well, taking Well, but you year. never
1: know perfectly, but right. it's certainly got worse and worse and worse and worse, and generally, I mean, in terms of the real size of economic growth... It slowed down a lot.
0: Yeah. And, uh, the problem and is, is, yeah, there's other forces you can point to. One, there's been far more government regulation. And the other is just that, you know, we, the, we, we you know, the eating all the low-hanging fruit that we figured out, the flush toilet, of the air conditioner, air cars, and are, we're there running on stuff.
1: that have taken this path, but it struck me that it was sort of had a limited payoff. You know, England financialized, mm-hmm. you know, they became, you know, f- fewer factories yeah. More, guy, more guys in the city. I mean, this happened a long time ago. This happened before World War One. Mm-hmm. And one thing they found when World War I started is this didn't help. You know, okay. Germany was better at making stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, now, there were things that Germany had its own problems, like Germany did depend upon resources that were distant and not always easy to get under blockade. Right. So they had their own weaknesses, that plus pissing off everybody in sight. Uh, but uh uh you know England is even more that way now, you know, as I understand you know awful lot of the British economy is doing something or other in the city,
0: yeah, and finance is certainly huge in London,
1: bigger than it used to be, yeah. you know we used to have people doing more other things, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think a lot of the British people feel like, and by the way, we could say the same for the United States, uh we're making fewer things mm-hmm. uh. Although, again, some of that trend is, is baked in with uh, uh, increasing factory automation. Right. But uh, we've kind of encouraged it. Uh, I remember, yes, this was another, this is a Charlie Munger story. Maybe I told it already. He was talking to George Schultz, mm-hmm. who had been in the Raven cabinet, and he was saying, well, you know, I could sort of, I know about comparative advantage and all that, but is it a really good idea to have closed down all the factories and have them all in China? Sure. <laughs> and uh, couldn't that turn out to be a bad thing at some time in the future? And Schultz said, Well, I don't like to think about it, but you know, (laughs) probably. It was But evidently, you know, we don't actually have policies, we just sort of exist. We don't really, you know, we just do
0: things. Yeah, but if we had policies, they'd likely be idiotic policies. They wouldn't probably
1: But that doesn't mean they wouldn't work better better than our current idiotic policies. I don't Um,
0: know. I'd rather it's just not The government not interfere in where we have factories and what we produce here and what we import?
1: Uh, I can tell you two countries, uh, two regions, that sort of went down those different paths. Okay. Uh, The South said, you know, we will grow cotton Mm -hmm. and export it and import, and we won't develop much tradition of developing, inventing, etc., complex machinery. Mm -hmm. The North more did it a different thing. Yes, yes. Okay, both in the Civil War and afterwards, <laughs> uh, I would say that the Southern thing turned out to not work as well.
0: Well, they weren't, yeah, they weren't as good at making weapons, so.
1: Uh, well, but that matters. Yeah. I mean, they weren't as good at making anything else either. Now, part of this was trying to guess, like you're trying to guess the long term trend. What is the long term trend? Are the real increase in returns going to be people doing primary production like cotton? Are they going to be people doing more complicated things like, let's say, building locomotives or something? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's automatically obvious. Which one it is? Mm-hmm. In eighteen, let's say in eighteen, like at some point where you might possibly have made some choices to go more one way or the other, mm-hmm. but it uh, going the way that was that looked optimal from a classical economics point of view didn't work out as well in the long run as the other one that clearly did look as optimal. Mm-hmm. Or, or you could say like England financialized well the you United know, in the eighteen seventies and eighties when the United States was industrializing, mm-hmm. which worked better? Well, I mean, you know, England
0: was able to you know win the World War through having a huge amount of money, being able to borrow a lot of money.
1: Being able to get America to come in. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, that helped too. But I mean, England could never have the economic you know force of America.
1: Uh, well, how do you know uh, so this size? Well, but you know maybe they would have done the equivalent of factory automation and efficient factories and things. Yeah. Uh, uh I'm just saying. Uh, there's lots. Well, I mean, and, well, here's an example. Well, I talked to you about camels?
0: I uh, don't recall.
1: Okay, good. It's, it's new then. Okay. This is not up to me, but that's something I read about, and it's interesting. Right. Okay, it turns out that, you know, if we go back to classical times, people, you know, when they, when they weren't going by water, they had a wagon that they pulled by oxen, mm-hmm. basically by oxen back then. Actually, horse harnesses weren't very good yet. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's how you, you move stuff around for okay. short distances. Okay, but after a while, people invented... It's complicated, by the way, because a camel is a different, uh, different kettle of fish than a cow. Uh, you need a special kind of harness. Mm-hmm. To, a, or, but when you do it, it turns out you can get a camel that can carry a lot, and it eats anything practically. I mean, mm-hmm. it leaves weeds by the side of the road and do fine. It's it's faster, and it, I mean, it doesn't need a road. It could easily go across rough, fairly rough territory. Mm-hmm had uh, people found out in the Middle East and North Africa that it was easier to carry things on a camel than it was on a wagon. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they stopped using wagons almost entirely over time. It's, this mm-hmm. was probably starting to be true by late Roman times, but by medieval <laughs> and Islamic times, it was definitely true. Mm-hmm. And so that meant they didn't need roads. Mm-hmm. They didn't they would have streets inside a city, but they didn't have roads, and they didn't need them anymore. So that's another savings, right? Right. Okay, and uh, and typically the uh, uh, in a real and you'll still see this in the real old part of an Arab city. The streets are very narrow because they don't have to be narrow enough for a wagon. They just have to be wide. They don't have to be wide enough for a wagon. They just have to be wide enough for a camel. Yeah. So that's why the souk will sometimes have these extremely narrow streets. <laughs> and it was cheaper. I mean, not only that, you, you can eat a camel, you can milk all the camel, uh, uh, many advantages. I mean, it didn't happen in Europe because camels don't do so well in wetter, cooler things, but it worked in North Africa. Mm-hmm. And this was true for a long time. Like, when some of Napoleon's guys were showing up in Syria in the early 1800s, mm-hmm. they said, you hardly ever see a wheel. Now so they knew how to make wheels, and so they still actually had some water wheels and things, but people didn't use wheels. They didn't have roads. Mm-hmm. They didn't there was no point in them. They had something that was like twenty or thirty percent cheaper. Yeah. And but it turns out there's no upgrade path on a camel. So, you know, in Europe people started building you know coaches with springs, and then they started building other wheeled vehicles and after a while they're building locomotives and then they're building steam driven vehicles and you know finally you end up with a Trans Am. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Middle East, they never really got it. Also, one of the things you've done that, you already have roads because you had a reason for roads. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, the ultimate uh, upgrade path is more promising, although it took a long time to show up. And I don't think anybody knows how to predict this, actually. Oh,
0: no. So It's not
1: really an argument for uneconomic policies. It's just saying that even ones that seem to make economic sense, you never really know in the long run. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) No, that uh, that's certainly true. You don't know what's going to work out, what's going to prove important, or what isn't.
1: Uh, uh, and you can actually have things which are lead you off in a direction that is not as fruitful, even though they are seem to be and actually are uh, have real advantages at the time. Mm-hmm. Or, or for example, you know, this one is worse. Uh, you know, uh, Western medicine tried, sort of, you know, you know, to have something kind of like a science in mm-hmm. the early days except it never did any of it. I mean, there was a little bit. I mean, there was some study of anatomy and stuff. And mm-hmm. some of these guys, in the earliest days, you could tell they were always groping for better ways. Right. But then, then they ended up sort of, you know, worshipping Galen for about 1,500 years, and they were totally useless and, in fact, bad for you.
0: Yeah, it did more harm than good.
1: Right. But it turned out that there was a better upgrade past to Western medicine because you you at least had heard and you kind of wished you were science Science had actually been kind of the first simple versions of it had been invented by those those Hellenistic times. Mm-hmm. And although it kind of went off the rails, people still remembered it. And even medicine sort there were parts of medicine that kind of wished wish they were. And then later they finally turned into it. Nobody else did. Like, you know, Chinese medicine might have been more effective for a thousand years than Western medicine because, for example, they had at least one thing that worked against malaria, Western medicine didn't until quinine, which came from the New World. Mm-hmm. Uh, so West and also I think Western medicine was really shitty, but in the long run, it had a better upgrade path. And I don't know if anybody uh, could have anticipated this, but I think it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Western scientific medicine is far better than anything else anybody ever had, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but it spent a long time as a pseudoscience. But evidently, a pseudoscience is. It's easier to turn from a pseudoscience into a science than something that wasn't even, that's just a bunch of recipes. It doesn't talk much about theory. Even if it's be- Somehow it's better to have all wrong theories than to have no theories or something. I'm not sure what how to explain this. But there's, there are things that in Western civilization, you know, sort of may so fall- fallow for... 1500 years, and then finally started blooming again.
0: So if you're trying to figure out cause and effect, even if you get it horribly wrong, at least you're thinking about cause and effect.
1: Something like that, I think. Uh, uh, And they they were horribly wrong. Uh, But it's an interesting question, uh, which is, uh, so, for example, if we want to close down, you know, something that seems really stupid to us, who knows? Maybe we just have to wait a couple thousand (laughs) (laughs) years for it to, uh, uh, you know, do Maybe we're, we're too skeptical about astrology. I don't actually believe that, but uh, uh, but it, it is interesting that there could be things like that. Uh, I mean, since we have seen some, right? We've seen things like uh, alchemy was not so totally useless. Alchemists knew how to do some things. They could make some things. You know, just call it, you know, it's a, it's a book. It's a bunch of recipes and a bunch of crazy theory. Right. But some of, the, some of the recipes work In medicine, very few of the recipes worked. I mean, I can think of a few, but they're really, you know, they were bad for you. Doctors were bad for you uh, for a very long time. I mean, I've heard arguments that they only broke even around in the 1930s. Uh, that's bad. But who knows? Maybe there'll be such a thing as political science. Maybe there'll, maybe there'll be such a thing as sociology. Uh, so I, I need to just, you know, what's the proper attitude when you're saying, we, we hope that you'll amount to something in 2,000 years? Is, is that condescending or, or uh, a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at any rate, uh, I don't think they would appreciate but, it. But uh, you know, you're talking about technical innovation. Classical times, the Romans did not do much. Yeah. They they borrowed from people and they used things. They didn't do much new by themselves. But I said, you know, the Greeks, uh, they did a few things. But you know, the, really, what they kind of invented was more science. They invented some technology, but they kind of invented science in Hellenistic times. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it kind of died out. There's this book by this guy named Russo, who argues that all sorts – the Greeks knew how to do all sorts of things that have been lost. And he's at least some right. I don't think he's mostly right, but he's some right. They mentioned an ex- mentioned example that I thought was pretty powerful. Suppose you have a bunch of symbols, you know, a string of ten symbols. You say, how many different ways are there to write parentheses around it? Uh-huh. You know, with the number of symbols, the number of possible ways grows. Right. Sort of a comb- combinatorics project. Uh, problem. Some German mathematician talked about this. So they're called I forget, they're named after him. The mm-hmm. some you know, here's the the, the 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 function of ten is how many ways. Okay, so, so he was some guy doing combinatorial logic or something in mm-hmm. like the eighteen seventies or eighties. But it turns out there's a, a point there's a line in Pliny where he says something it's a little hard to understand what he's saying. He's saying something about ways of rearranging or something. But ten and it's this that he gives this function of 10, and it's the same number. So, I mean, we know that lots of things were lost. The question is, I mean, there's things we have some comments on. There's things we have just enough to be intriguing. Anyhow, he's thinking that the Greeks went farther than we know, and I'm sure that's at least somewhat true. But, of course, he goes nuts after a while and starts talking about how, you know, probably classical times they visited America. I said, let me guess. They're careful not to take anything there and not to bring anything back. <laughs> they visited America in classical times? Well, it's not, it's not absolutely impossible. I mean, you know, people have done transatlantic trips. Again, when you know where you're going and what the currents are and you, you know everything, mm-hmm. there are people – somebody did it, in, I think, in a uh, coracle. And I remember somebody else did it in an amphibious Jeep. Uh, You know, people have done, people, I mean, the puppy's probably done it in a canoe, but of course they're always saying, I do have my radio, if things go bad, I'll call the Coast Guard. Uh, And the other thing is, like, it's not impossible, it's easier to get one way than to get there and come back. Let's suppose somebody from classical times had gotten to America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, the the most important thing that could happen is if they were carrying some disease, that could have been bad. Right. Uh, But... You're not that likely to, as an individual, if you're a small crew, Mm -hmm. Uh, be a lot of diseases, you know, only things with a carrier state would be very likely, you know, where you could have a lingering disease. Uh, I mean, if you have smallpox, you're either going to be dead or well before you get there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the thing is, you know, people have talked about this at great length, and the thing is, you know some of it had to happen, because... We have, you know, in terms of the past couple of hundred years, there have been fishermen from East Asia who got caught in a storm and ended up landing on the west coast of of somewhere in the Americas. Uh, There was uh, some Japanese fishermen who got caught in a storm, but they were still, their ship was wrecked. They couldn't navigate it, but it's kept floating. They got enough rain that they didn't die. They caught some fish, and they landed along the coast of British Columbia and were immediately enslaved by the local (laughs) Indians. And then the... uh, uh, the uh, Hudson Bay Company freed them. Mm-hmm. The, Br- the British said we were taught talk- we wanted to have some sort of, hopefully a trade treaty or something with the Japanese, and here we'll sweeten it. We have a couple of you know, stranded s- seamen. You'll, you'll, you'll like us for giving them back. Yeah. The Japanese wouldn't let them back in. They said, you have seen the evil outside world. This <laughs> was the you know, the period of isolation. Oh. Uh, but the thing is, things like that happen once in a while. The question is, how much impact do they have? You know, The, the things that would really show up is if any of the if rice had been trans... You know, any of the crops that moved one way or the other,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but they didn't.
0: Do you think we'll find genetic evidence in Native Americans?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, there's actually a funny Y chromosome thing. so sort of a patch of it in Ecuador and, and American Indians mm-hmm. that looks a lot like some things that used to be in Japan, but I don't know. This is thing you'd have to redo to have enough confidence that it meant anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would. you think is... Even then, you have to be lucky. Like, you land... The other thing is there's a style of pottery in the same area that looks very Japanese. Other people have wondered about this. See, if you land and things go well, you might have a number of descendants. Right. It might show up. Probably the easiest thing to happen is, hey, we got some screwy guy. He doesn't speak language. Kill him. Yeah. Or enslave him. I didn't kill him. You know, there's... You don't always... uh, you know, in science fiction, you land this and you become king, but you don't think they usually do. Uh, those Indians who land in British Columbia, they did not make them king. Uh, uh, those, but uh, it might have, it, it had to happen. The question is how much, you know, it's probably easier to transmit a disease than it is to transmit an idea, particularly if you don't speak the language. And also, you know, talking about specialization, suppose there was like some bronze technique that would be, you know, anybody would be interested in it if you knew how to do it. Right. What are the odds the Japanese fishermen know it?
0: Yeah, yeah, very low.
1: Not terribly high. Uh, you know, are they literate? I said, probably not. If you go back far enough, certainly not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyhow, there was a guy who was interested in uh, transmission of diseases and things back deep in the past. He wondered if something ancestral syphilis got transmitted uh, across the Pacific. And he was looking. I think he found, like, in the past 200 years, there were, like, 17 or 20 you know, crashes where people ended up on the West Coast from by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, but evidently most of the time it doesn't lead to anything. Uh, but the, the one thing we now know, which is generally, again, there might be a patch. Uh, there might have been a pottery technique. Cause that one mm-hmm. wouldn't be too crazy. But, uh, I mean, like when you talk about the Central American civilizations, they build pyramids. I said, well, you know, it's kind of hard to build a skyscraper, and what did you expect them to do, build upside-down pyramids? Because that would be really difficult. Right. Uh, uh, but, you know, you know, when you think of this long list of useful things that if anybody had seriously landed, they would have transmitted, like, you know, iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Indians, I think, occasionally used meteoric iron, but that's it. They never learned iron smelting, you know, which is actually pretty complicated and difficult. Uh, they uh, never got any old world crops, they didn't get wheat, they didn't get, you know, any, you know barley, anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it didn't go the other way either, I mean, until after Columbus. Uh, so, but the one thing that's come out recently, you know, is, uh, you know, we're finding all sorts of interesting, odd things about prehistory with uh, deeper analysis, but also ancient DNA. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they found was, now this had a, I remember I was pretty perplexed at the time. I think there were people who might have guessed this earlier. But I didn't know enough. Uh, they found out that people in northern Europe were more closely rendered American Indians than they were to say the Chinese. Okay. And the turns the way they're measuring this, there's only one way to have this happen. You have to have mixing for one group. You have to have some common ancestry for those two groups. So people in Germany or England had to have some common ancestry with a group that had played a part in founding the American Indians. We're not talking about recent. These are, you can find Indians deep in the Brazilian jungle. They had, you know, with no Portuguese mixture or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also shows up in ancient DNA. What they found was there used to be this population in Siberia, and that population was sort of involved in the formation of the Mm Indo-Europeans. They're probably about half or more of the Indo-European ancestry, a a group descended from this, but another branch of it went east and mixed with some people who are more like Chinese or Koreans, and founded the ancestors of the main group of American Indians. Wow. so there the reason that uh, it's so there's a, a certain and there were people who I, I did not know about it at the time, but there were people who had had some skeletal reasons to wonder about this, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they had convinced a lot of people, but there were some. But the other hint is, if you look at Y chromosomes, most European Y chromosomes come out of this Siberian group. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Indian Y chromosomes, they do too. I mean, they're kind of sister groups to the European ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the main ones in uh, Europe are these R1, R, R1B, and R1A, uh, and in Chinese and, and in the American Indians, they're what they call these Q lineages, but those are related to in the you know, they're reasonably related, mm-hmm. uh, sort of sister groups to the R lineages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, a lot of interesting stuff has come out of that. We now, you know, like we have this, you know, like a few years ago, we found that there was this version of a Y chromosome that was extremely com- common in Central Asia. It looks like all these guys are direct male descendants of Genghis Khan.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that
1: about 16 million people. Well, the, Genghis Khan was a piker, because there there is one that is most of the people in Western Europe have, mm-hmm. or at least you know it's, it varies from place to place. By the time you get to Ireland, it's eighty percent. It's called you know all descended R one B, all descended from one guy about five thousand years ago.
0: Oh, we have no idea uh, who he is from the historical records.
1: It's before. It's a little bit before history, uh, but you can guess roughly what he had to do. Yeah. These were the Indo-European expansion. They conquered. This is sort of from like Western Germany west, but all, you know Italy, mm-hmm. and, and to some extent, you know France, Low Countries, England. These guys, he must have founded a dynasty, and the dynasty ended up being turning into the general nobility. Which the thing is, it's not like he had a million kids because you can't have a million kids. Right. You might, if you really worked at it, manage to have a couple of hundred or even more. But most likely, what happened is that. He had a bunch of kids, and after a while, they became, generally speaking, the nobility, in, you know, over a large area of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And though that nobility, for a long time, wasn't overthrown, and they too, on average, had more kids, so they're gradually expanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, which is sort of what happened with Genghis. It wasn't all just to his generation. His children were, you know, had whole countries as their inheritance. Right. And so forth. So, something like this must have happened starting about 5,000 years ago. And there was another lineage, R1A, and it's common. Germany has some of both. So, it's Germany and farther east, you know, into the Baltics, and, you know, all into the, the Russians, the other mm-hmm. Slavic peoples. But not just that, you also find it in Iran and India. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out people who were sort of allied or, you know, you know, in the same general branch as the Slavs, those are the people who went down and conquered uh, Iran and India mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. Afghanistan first, probably. Uh, uh, and that, uh, even though they're not the majority of ancestry, it's some groups in India, most of the, you know, they're the, most of the male ancestry, particularly of the upper caste. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, you know, this is all what the, uh, what the people and archaeologists were saying back in the 1930s: there were a bunch of horsemen from the steppe had conquered India and Iran mm-hmm. and imposed their Indo-European languages and religion on them and so forth. And sophisticated people in India today: know it's not true. But it is true, mm-hmm. and, and partly it's not true because they don't want it to be true. Yeah. But it turns out that is not actually all that effective at changing the past. <laughs> uh, so I mean, people are saying things like, "Well, but." You know, do we have any records of these battles? Do you realize we have trouble finding even when there's historically a battle. Lots of times we've never been able to find the exact site of the battle, even when it's, you know, it's 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 you know like Chalons or something like that. They don't. Now and then they do find it. Like just recently, they found some place in Belgium where they're pretty sure Caesar exterminated an entire tribe, and they're finding just loads of bodies. But the, usually, you know, even with its history, they don't usually tell you enough to find it very easily. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that's and, the major story of prehistory of different groups conquering other groups? And
1: uh, Sometimes there were other things <laughs> happen. happened. Uh, like uh, when I mentioned this, uh, uh, the formation of the Indo-Europeans before they went off and conquered everybody in sight, uh, there seems to have been a bunch of guys who were hunter-gatherers in Eastern, like in Russia. Again, largely descended from this old Siberian group. Mm-hmm. And then... They mixed with a bunch of people from what is now Georgia. they these people genetically very similar to some modern Georgians, mm-hmm. uh, and those people were probably farmers. Where and the guy, the other thing is, it looks like it was the hunter gatherers who were descended from the Siberians. Those, there were guys from one group and women from another group somehow got together, mm-hmm. uh, which of course you know that's we know stories like that where we know that. It's recent history, like you know. In generally speaking, uh, if you looked at Y chromosomes, Mexico would look maybe 60% Spanish. If you looked at mitochondria, it might look something like that. Indian, it's you know it was mostly Spanish guys and mostly Indian women, mm-hmm. and, you know some of, of other things too. But that's you know the trend. Right. Uh, but that turns out to be true for India. The Y chromosomes are much more like those steppe warriors. In other words, it was guys, you know, a rough model is you have a guy conquers somewhere, he takes some of the local women as wives, at least one, mm-hmm. he has children. Those children are like him on the Y chromosome, the boys are. Mm-hmm. He, they're exactly like him. But in other things, they're, you know, they're sort of a split between him and the locals. Mm-hmm. And then they go off, apparently, largely through his culture, they go off and conquer some more people and they do it again. The Y chromosome never gets diluted as long as they keep doing this. Yeah. But other things do. So in Northern Europe, uh, the other thing is, you know, I, you know there are, the people who study Indo-European legends, one of their most ancient legends is some sort of fusion of people. We had a bunch of guys picked up a bunch of women from some other place and that founded the Indo-Europeans. Mm-hmm. And one of the places this legend shows up again is the Sabine women. Yeah. Or more, more recently, the Sobbing women in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. <laughs> That's, the thing is, it might be true. It looks like it. You had a bunch of women from a bunch of farmers somehow got acquired by a bunch of guys who were not farmers and probably were riding horses.
0: And they, yeah, their children did better than the children of other people.
1: Well, they, t- I mean, they had a package their work. You know, yeah. their, their thoughts, their way of life, their techniques, their horses, probably as much as anything else. Uh, it worked and they conquered a lot of other places, uh, and this is kind of what the linguists were saying, and for a while, people you know, people were arguing against it as much as anything else because they didn't like it. I don't ever think there was any, you know, like people would just ignore things. I mean, they're ignoring them today. Like when these guys show up, in much of Europe, farming stops. Like they had people growing barley 6,000 years ago in England mm-hmm. and uh, at Ireland, and those were the first wave of farmers out of Turkey, which had occupied almost all of Europe, mm-hmm. and they're still the ancestors of a lot of people in Europe, particularly in Southern Europe. Uh, but then somebody else came, and they can't find any sign of any farming so, for hundreds of years. So
0: most people must have died then.
1: Yes, uh-huh. yes, like in Germany, there were villages, mm-hmm. and then you go to a period where there are no buildings. There's no sign. There's either between zero and very small amount of farming. I think these guys knew how to farm, but they didn't like to. If it's up to them, they, they'd like to raise cattle. That's primarily what they did. I mean, other things too, but mainly that. And even though they ended up with a smaller population, well, you know, it's not it's not pure population that makes you win or lose. Uh, Do you think it could have been
0: the spread of disease or was it probably genocide?
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't think you would have had the same kind of spread of disease you did in the New World because that's a period of very long, really deep isolation and it's many different diseases that are hitting the Indians. Mm -hmm. It's not just one. Now, could there have been something that came along with these guys? It's not impossible, Uh, And we might get to find out if we find bodies from the right period. Uh, People have talked about the bubonic plague as a possibility. It certainly exists out of the the step they came from. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I figure they bashed their heads in. That's what I figure. Uh, 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 mostly, uh, I mean, for one thing, we know. I mean, there are probably different degrees of a mixture, but it, like in Germany, it looks like maybe eighty percent of the ancestry of the, the new population is from the steppes and twenty percent is from you know locals they absorbed, mm-hmm. probably women, uh, almost entirely. Uh, in Ireland. Uh, they said, like, 6,000 years ago, people in Ireland looked like, uh, genetically, they looked like uh, people from Sardinia, mm-hmm. which was, they're kind of the purest example of the old farmers. Uh, fourth, uh, 5,000 years ago, they looked like the Irish today. And they don't sh- show any real sign of a mixture with the previous guys. So, although, you know, that's still early days. We haven't done too much ancient DNA in Ireland, but... The thing is, everybody says, well, you couldn't have just killed them. I said, well, yeah, because that would be wrong. Well, wait, how did they...
0: I mean, they, they would have had to get enough people on boats to... Yeah. Could they put they horses would've. on boats back then and get to Ireland and get enough...
1: How else do you get horse, horses ended up in Ireland? They didn't fly.
0: Yeah, but you could... Trans, your Warriors could get enough people and enough horses to Ireland? It's not so
1: far. First, you get in England. Okay. By the way, farming stopped in England. And I've read people saying... You know, well, you know, maybe the, the soil was exhausted, I said, <laughs> over the whole... By the way, it didn't completely go. There were a couple of places they kept farming in England, like up in the Shetland Islands. It's mm. my argument. is, says, why? Because that's some place that people haven't gotten to. Right. They're not exactly the very best place to farm. You know, Shetland Islands is a place where people put stone walls along the uh, fields to keep the sheep from blowing away. <laughs> I mean, really. That's not a joke. They will blow away. Uh if if you don't put those walls there, uh, but yeah, they were growing barley up in a couple of islands up in the you know to the north of Scotland, but they were doing apparently no farming at all in the rest of England. And the same thing happened in Ireland, no farming, for several hundred years, and then they have, I've read archaeological papers, and they're just hysterical. They're saying, well, you know, it must have been that, uh, you know, farming stopped working. I said, How would that happen? Or it said, or the world got a little hotter, a little cold, you know. It's climate change. You know, like I I, I was joking on the blog once that, you know, in the future, somebody will like the future, like maybe in June, somebody will write a paper saying the real reason that the Germans left France in 1944 was climate change. Yeah. So, oh yeah, go on. But yeah, it's, uh, you can exhaust soil in certain ways, but it usually doesn't stay exhausted very long. So you'd end up doing what they call shifting cultivation. Like, we farm this for a while, we move on, and after a while we go back. Mm-hmm. It's not it, The possibilities don't go away. I mean, today we could use fertilizers and think could farm it all the time, but that's how you would do it in the past. Like, in classical times, you would typically, the most typical ways, like you're growing wheat, and they'd say, well, this year we farm this piece of land, and the next year we don't, you know, just every other year. Well, could it have been a, di- a crop disease, Uh, would have had to hit several crop diseases because they grew more than one crop. Mm -hmm. But it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. It's unlikely. You would have had to hit both wheat and barley for sure Mm -hmm. and knock them both out pretty much. Uh, That might have been enough, though, back then. Those were the main... There were other things people grew, but they weren't the main staples Mm -hmm. typically. Actually, there were probably two types of wheat. You had spelt and you also had bread wheat. You probably would have needed three different things, although maybe you could have had one to kill both kinds of wheat Probably at least two, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have any sign of it? No. Okay. Uh, by the way, it didn't get up into the Shetland Islands, but maybe that's because they're isolated. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, uh, I think it's pretty easy to say they just came and bashed their heads in. Uh, but the thing is, you know, even if you do that, the number of bodies you're going to find that are going to basically be able to identify what happened is likely not very big. You know, that the, the chance that any given body gets basically preserved in a way that both it isn't just doesn't rot and disintegrate but it's also found later you know both unlikely things mm-hmm. it's not very high so I mean like there have been places where we've been able to dig through an ancient city and we can tell well everything burned here but even then it's hard to know well but you have fires that happen by accident yeah now and then you'll notice that hey all these people are dead with arrows in them uh, that that could be helpful uh, there was a this was when the original farmers were moving up into northern Europe. Uh, I was reading a, a book in which this was called War Before Civilization. They were digging up these, they were basically sort of forts, like log log forts, mm-hmm. uh, in places like Belgium. That's where, that was the frontier for the farmers coming at that point. And, and people were coming up with theories like, well, these walls are symbolic. They They symbolize, you know, whether it's... It's land that's been tamed by the hand of man and stuff. And then they dug up one more, and they found all these dead people with arrows in them in the ditch around the Palisade, which is even more symbolic when you think about it. <laughs> they, have, they have found other things like this in England where they found you know hundreds of bodies. They said, well, they must have had some way of, you know, it's, it's they're probably like the Parsis. You know, they put the bodies out to rot. It's part of, you know, some uh, and, and then they shoot arrows into them because, you know, that's part of it, too. Uh... uh it was very fashionable. I don't know if it's quite as fashionable now to say that bad people could not be like that, even though we know that people often are.
0: What was the reason for saying people weren't like that? Is it, is it that just that you know the all best... violence comes from capitalism and this was pre-capitalist or something?
1: Well, a Brian Ferguson would argue that you know, the only reason bad things happen is because Europeans have showed up. Well, that's mm-hmm. kind of hard to project back into the Bronze Age, though. But he would say, you know, the reason that Indians would do things like fight each other is because all these delicate equilibria have been ruined by uh, people landing. By the way, it, it did stir things up. Okay, it's mm. a fair. That's not a totally stupid comment. On the other hand, when they find you know some place uh, along the Missouri River and there's you know three hundred dead guys, all you know with their skulls bashed in, and it dates back to you know fourteen hundred. It's hard to blame it on Columbus, <laughs> yeah. unless unless you think he had a time machine. Uh, and you know, and, uh, again, you know, there's not always good preservation. I mean, they just found another thing recently. This was up, where was this, Poland or Germany? They found what apparently was a Bronze Age battle, which they're estimating must have killed, like, a couple of thousand guys or something. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize that they had big enough forces that you could have such a big battle. Yeah, and just getting
0: but, the logistics must have been hard, getting the food there.
1: Uh, yeah, but if you kill each other quickly, that that simplifies it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, uh, uh... What they have is they have prejudice saying, I think part of this," they that if we said people or did things like that, it might encourage people to do it. I said, I don't really think they need any encouragement, but mm-hmm. the other is just if we make up elaborate stories and say that these things did not happen, even though they did, it will make the world a better place. I doubt that, no. but that might be what they're thinking. Well, uh,
0: yeah. Well, what is the, the lesson that we're, we're descended uh, from these people that we're descended from the people who are best at genocide, if this is true. that
1: Gives you a certain confidence, doesn't it? Would you like me, <laughs> well, be, Because it means if somebody shows up and tries to do it to you, you, there's a reasonable chance you'll be able to do it to them first.
0: Okay. Uh, Except they're a descendant as well, so...
1: Well, yes, but what if you weren't? Uh, and yeah. If, like, <laughs> suppose you lived on the Andaman Islanders and you really hadn't had much of this happen, mm-hmm. then you might be, you know, in trouble.
0: It's
1: yeah. uh, right, you're in trouble anyhow, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> I think it's just more interesting to try to figure out how things actually work. But I, mean, I don't really know. I mean, what I would hear people say is they would say things like, it's it's not cool to use this explanation. I said, but it, we know many examples where things like that have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can tell you Indian tribes that almost completely wiped out another tribe in recent historical times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, you know, there's things like this that happened, you know, in, in Asia, that happened in Africa, New mm-hmm. um, Guinea. I mean, it's not rare. Uh, and they said, I mean, well, you know, like, uh, there used to be a different group of people living in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, they sometimes called them the paleo Eskimos Mm -hmm. or the Dorset culture. They had a different kind of less complicated technology. They didn't have sled dogs. Mm -hmm. They didn't have kayaks. They didn't have the efficient ways of hunting for marine mammals. Mm -hmm. The Eskimos did. And, uh, and the Eskimos moved, the Eskimos moved apparently came later, uh, apparently completely replaced them and killed every one of them. Mm. Uh, uh, And they found some... They were able to get some genetics from a a little sample from Greenland. And they said, although they are from an Asian group that's not incredibly different, they are not the same as the Eskimos. And there's no real sign the Eskimos uh, mixed with them, Mm. so they're probably just all dead. Uh, And I had people say, well, that but people couldn't be like that. And I said, but but everywhere we look, they are.
0: Now, I remember reading that on your blog and the one comment someone made that I thought might have been true is w- they would have killed even all the women. Uh,
1: I think that is more likely in a place like the Arctic because, you know, if you have a place where women could do a whole lot of what's necessary to produce food for themselves, mm-hmm. you know, like in a lot of places in Africa, uh, they have kinds of agricultural women, in fact, do most of the work. Right. So, you How is it? Can you afford an extra wife? The answer is, well, you're richer if you have an extra wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she produces enough food to protect her kids. On the other hand, in the the Arctic, it was almost entirely guys. You're living almost entirely off, off, uh, uh, you know, seals, things Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, And uh, you're not growing little gardens. Uh, Women are not terribly good at it because they're not as strong. And basically, uh, a a guy who had two wives, he would better be damn good because they don't you know, they can, they're, they're with, women work, I'm not saying that, but they don't directly produce food, they do things like they help produce gear, you know, make parkas, important things like that, but they don't produce food, mm-hmm. and so if you have two wives, you'll have trouble feeding them, that's one, Now the other thing is, for all I know, they didn't like each other, people had, could have screwy reasons, yeah. you know, that are, are not short-term practical reasons, they would say, look, they have bad habits, you know, they don't, they don't you know they, they eat X and everybody knows there's a taboo against eating X. Yeah. You know, you know, like you could say the Dorset people. You know, they eat pork, so they're well, they didn't because they didn't have any, cat, any pigs, but but they might have done something that there was a taboo against, and that might have you might have had the the the, the say, said well, said they were disgusting, <laughs> and for all that they might have been something that would have disgusted you too. Maybe they were cannibals. Yeah. Some people have been. So uh, the uh, but I mean, it's hard to say. But I said, the economics is sort of against it. Because you can't easily feed uh, you know, uh, extra, p- extra people. Uh, and you're probably not looking for young new warriors to adopt into your family. Because they're you know, rivals and enemies. Right. Anyhow, that's just a guess. I don't know. But there's no sign that they mixed. Uh, now, there's other people who did. I mean, like the founding of the American Indian group. You had this Siberian group. Mixed, with, but it, again, it doesn't look—it doesn't look like it's perfectly like. Like, why is it that almost all of the the men were from one group and the women from the other? Doesn't this sound like something to you? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the men
0: conquered and killed the, the other does men, and
1: that's what happened with the Indo-Europeans, apparently as well. That they found it that way—that there was a group of women from Georgia and guys from the forest or something. And, uh, although, you know, this this is in a sense, more friendly than just killing everybody. Well, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, like, it now looks like there's been more than one turnover in Europe since the Neanderthals. There were groups, you know, they called Rovetians and things like that, but the Mm -hmm. next group, which has a different, you know, set of tools, Mm -hmm. they may not have much relationship with them. There's been... It's not just that you... You had guys who were mostly replaced, not entirely, but mostly replaced by farmers from Anatolia. Mm -hmm. And then those guys were mostly not entirely replaced. I mean, Northern Europe mostly replaced. In Southern Europe only somewhat replaced by Indo-Europeans. Mm-hmm. But there were layers before that, like maybe three, wow. where uh, you know Group X is replaced by this other group. Uh, in the Americas, all right, what do we know? Uh, we've learned new things that are strange. Some of it was not so strange. Like There's at least three kind of recent movements. The main one is we just call the Amerindians. Okay, and there was a couple of later ones. The latest one is the Eskimo. Well, actually, I'm trying to remember if it's two or three. These guys who were the the Dorset culture, they came and they're kind of separate from the other Amerindians. Then they're replaced by the Eskimos. Mm-hmm. Then there's another one, and it may be related to the Dorset culture, so that might be not a separate one. But there's a group that uh, produced a lot of guys. Uh, speak a group of languages called Athabaskan. Mm-hmm. There, it's you know, it's in interior Alaska. Interior Western Canada, and some of them moved all the way down to become the Navajo. Mm. Okay, and that's a, that's later. That's a few thousand years ago. And again, from Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but they also mixed with the original American Indian groups. Okay. So, but, but a lot of that had been suspected because the Navajo looked different. Mm-hmm. And because you have this group of languages that goes up, right up to the edge of Asia, you know, going up into Alaska and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that was not... A, but the, the one weird thing, again, it's out of the genetics, they found that if you go down to Central South America, this hasn't been seen in North America. I mean, like only a teeny tiny bit in the southernmost part of Panama. So mm-hmm. basically, this is a South American thing. There are some Indian, particularly in a certain language group, Indians who show, again, a few percent, maybe a couple, mm-hmm. of another group. And the group, the closest group in the world today to this extra mixture are Andaman Islanders. Where is that? Those those are in uh, this bay between Burma and uh, and India. Whoa! So there's a group of islands, and you have these short little black people mm-hmm. who have probably been there a long time. Other group, like you know, like India is sort of a mixture of people, mm-hmm. but it looks like the earliest group was related to these guys. So you might think of them as a kind of ancient Asians. Uh, another place where you used to have people like that was Southeast Asia. You mm-hmm. still have a few. You'll have short, dark-skinned people. There are some of them in the interior areas of Malaysia. And I think the, there's a few in Thailand. And they made it to the New World somehow? It looks like these guys used to be all Southeast Asia, uh-huh. all of Indonesia, uh, up a lot, long way up the Chinese coast, and maybe further. And that maybe further is... But yeah, they must have gotten to the Americas. Uh-huh. You know? Or possibly they mixed some with the American Indians, but somehow... Only with some of the American Indians, the North American Indians don't have any of this. Mm-hmm. But it's some of the ones, and, and to me, the simplest model here is that these guys got there first.
0: Why? And Why first?
1: Well, you see, if you go, like, you know, the time that the this, you know, the main branch of the American Indians, we now know they came maybe fifteen thousand years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we found more evidence. Bore some ancient DNA, some tools. At first, they were in Alaska. Eventually, they went other places. Right. Okay. Uh, we know something about that, but you see, if you if somebody came earlier, uh, North America was an unfriendly place because we were still pretty deep in the. If you you know, this was during the ice age was retreating. But you go back a little earlier, the ice age is nearly at full strength. Mm-hmm. So that means that a place like Chicago is under several thousand feet of ice. Admit. <laughs> You, you know, taiga you know, is the kind of, of uh, evergreen forest you have in northern Canada. Mm-hmm. Taiga went all the way down to the Gulf Coast, if we're talking 18,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, North America, I mean, you might have been able to make a living fishing on the west coast, but it was a crappy place to settle. But if you get all the way down to Brazil, Brazil is not crappy, it's warm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're pretty close to the glacial maxima. And in cases like that, tropical areas are where you want to be. Because other places are just awful,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so my model is that they guys down the coast, and they settled Brazil, mm-hmm. and there are funny skeletons, very old ones that maybe look like these people, but we're not sure. But the point is, this signature is only found in Brazil, basically, mm-hmm. or maybe a little bit in Colombia or something, but only in South America. And the thing is, if if the other theory says, well, they must have mixed before they came here, I said. Well, then why don't American Indians in North America show it? Mm-hmm. It's simpler if you just assume they didn't have any of it until they ran into these guys, and then they stopped them with a little bixing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 but see, the thing is, these guys used to live in uh, occupied like, places all the way up into Vietnam, you know, and further than that, up into South China. But mm-hmm. people coming down from China, people who are more like the Chinese, have been kicking their butt for thousands of years. You used to have, all of Southeast Asia was full of people who were kind of like this. Mm-hmm. And now they're almost entirely replaced. Now, in a few places, you can see the amount of admixture, Like, you can see it some of Vietnam. You can see it more in Cambodia. Cambodia is about 20% the previous group. Mm-hmm. The, non, the non-South Chinese. The Burmese are pretty much entirely you know, the Chinese types. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, by the way, there's other groups that have something in common with these people who Used to live in Southeast Asia. People in places like New Guinea have something in common. Uh, you know, they were the older layer of inhabitants. Right. Uh, but the but the closest of all living populations to this uh, this this fraction, little fraction we find in in Brazil, are the guys in the Andaman Islands. Which is, you know, it's a weird story. Uh, but, but my guess. The the other possibility is they mixed before they got here, but how they then ended up with American Indians in North America who had unmixed. You see, you can always mix, but unmixing (laughs) is a real prick. Yeah. I don't know how to do it. Uh, Now, but the other reason, see, people don't like this. But that doesn't doesn't make it a better hypothesis, but it also does not make it a worse hypothesis. Why do they
0: not like it? Is it because they were wiped out? Let me ask,
1: partly, what's the other reason? Ah. I'm quizzing you. You're the professor. You should answer this. Okay.
0: Well I mean the Native Americans like to, to claim that this land was stolen from them, so if they if they weren't here first, then they can't claim that. That's it.
1: That's the other reason. Ah, okay. like we we it we should be first whether we were or not. Ah. By the way, the Navajo couldn't claim it, because they're definitely from a later the Eskimos can't claim it, by the way, they will anyhow, because mm-hmm. nobody gives a crap about, you know, the accuracy of prehistory. Mm-hmm. But I mean if we were talking about Who could claim it? I said, it might be the Amerindians could claim it. By the way, even if they can't claim it, they might be able to claim it for Ontario, even if they can't claim it for Brazil. Because it's quite possible that, in fact, I'll bet money that they were the first people there because with these guys, if I'm right, they came a little bit earlier, nobody lived in Ontario because it was covered with ice. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but yeah, it's possible these guys got there earlier. The other thing is, they, must have, they probably had a crumbier toolkit. I think that kind of fits what we know of them from Southeast Asia and stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they
1: seem to be easy to beat. I mean, their whole history for thousands of years, everywhere we hear about them, they're always losing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there used to be people kind of like this in the Philippines, too, and now they're mostly replaced by people who immigrated ultimately from China.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there are a couple of tribes left that still have like 50% genetics of the previous guys. Mm-hmm. Uh and but you know, they're trying kind to of, I don't know what the fraction is of the general Philippine population, it's probably not terribly high. But in the Mamanwas about they're about fifty percent the old guys, and they look different. Mm-hmm. Uh uh but uh but they you know, they've just been losing and losing and losing. Anyhow, it something like this may have happened in the Americas. Uh and if this is true, I we're gonna have to rethink all these casinos. Yeah. We're gonna we have to in each casino you have to put another little casino inside the casino. <laughs> uh the, uh, but, uh, the other question is, even if we do it, who gets the money? Do we give it to the Andaman Islanders, who are, you know, they're the closest relatives existing, but they're distant cousins at best, mm-hmm. right? Uh, anyhow... Well, we uh, have to
0: clone course, the people. We have to find the skeletons and clone them and bring them back, and then give them the okay. casinos.
1: That seems fair. I mean, what, how could that go wrong? I mean, yeah. of, them, of course, we have to, the, we have to clone the Andathals, yeah. Homo erectus, uh,
0: well, you know, that's real diversity, is bringing all these you know, species that went extinct and all the variants of humans that went uh, extinct and bringing them back.
1: I've, uh, I've certainly talked about this, but that's because I'm crazy. Uh, <laughs> well. Uh, but I, could, I guess. Uh, but maybe. Uh, but I'll tell you, most of them would probably do poorly, particularly get back to Homo erectus, because, you know, I don't think they were very smart. Well, uh,
0: it depends I mean, how you mean. I mean, you know, we have, you know, dogs and cats that do really well, and... You know, they well, if we're
1: trying to make them as citizens and things. Yeah. Dogs and cats, I, I, this could be a shock to you, but look, my dog might be ready, but most people are not. <laughs> well, like my dog uh, is special because he tries to talk with moderates. <laughs> uh, he has two things he says. One of them, if you've been gone for a while you come in, he says, hello! <laughs> really, he does. Nobody believes this, but he does. The other thing is he's occasionally trying to say, I love you, but that's harder to understand. Okay. And I'll tell you, when this first started happening, I was thinking I'm living in the twilight zone. Uh, but it's, not a, it's one of the good episodes, what you know, kind of was with a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Because if you have, if the worst thing that happens, you have a dog that says hello. That's not really bad.
0: No, but it is a sign of other things that you might not be perceiving the world very well if you think your dog is talking to you. You think it too? I'm not joking. Everybody who listens to it fix it. All right. Well, you should. I should. You should record it and put it on your website.
1: You probably should. Yeah. Uh, although uh, the uh, uh, what was I thinking? Of? Oh yeah. You know, since my kids have done pretty well in school, I was working on an overall theory, mm-hmm. overarching theory that you know we had discovered an elixir. <laughs> because it could be, it could be heredity. Because you know, nobody believes in that, right? Yeah. So. If your kids do well at school to an unusual extent, it must be because of you know you're doing
0: something oh, environmental. i thought of that too. I my son is you is should try doing much better than I did at his age. I don't think we should look at kids who do well at school. We should look at kids who did much better than their parents and who are doing well, because that's even more impressive. I think that's if your if your kids and we should do a study of these kids and if you know if there is something environmental that would be the easiest place to see it probably where kids who are say two standard deviations above both their parents and, you know, way above the mean.
1: How many standard deviations is a talking dog?
0: Well that, yeah, that's a lot. Um,
1: that's well, we've,
0: we've probably that's fine, uh,
1: but we've, I think we're going to get about three valedictorians and a talking dog. That must be a sign. Well, the talking uh, dog would be very impressive. uh, uh. It, it's, it weirds me out every now and then, but, you know, you, you get used to it. I mean, it's not really that bad, uh, and it's not like you can read, as far as I know.
0: Well, uh, you should definitely put it on YouTube, or, you know, actually what you should do is do a uh, no GoFundMe me, and say, if I get this much money, I will put a video of my talking dog.
1: Well, I, I would probably cheat at first record it, so I would, I think it's kind of unpredictable. You'd have to hang around, although yeah. with a cell phone, it really wouldn't be that difficult, but, you, you know, he doesn't do it on command, he just does it now and then, so mm-hmm. it might be once a week.
0: Well, just so leave it. Like re- have to work a little. To yeah, that or leave a recorder on all the time, and you know when he talk, when he says we can it, do that. you know, or okay. It would be
1: better to show the to, yeah. We could probably do that.
0: Set up a video uh, camera. Other, yeah, that's.
1: The, by the way, other people have had this happen, although it's rare. Uh, uh, I mean, some people have taught their. See, the other thing is, most people probably tried. Mm-hmm. We didn't deliberately do it. He just said, "Why is Charlie saying hello?" <coughs> that's he doesn't say it perfectly, although sometimes he does fairly well. Do you Uh, think he's trying to say
0: hello, or is it just random?
1: He's doing something that we did, he's imitating it, and he thinks we like it. I think Mm -hmm. that's it. I don't think... uh, By the way, he uses it as if it means hello. He usually does it when you've been out of the house for a while, and you come back in (laughs) and he says, no, really, that's when he does it. Uh, So he uses it kind of the way we use it. But uh, you know, dogs do understand some words, and some people have trained certain dogs to know a fairly large number of words. He's not like that. I mean I've heard of somebody who trained I think it was a German shepherd and they would tell it to go fetch a particular thing and it and, you know and he had another room full of things for it to fetch it could identify a full thousand different things oh. to fetch. Uh but of course I figure, you know, that's kind of like a tiger mother for your dog. I mean your dog would probably rather play than than learn, you know, a thousand different things to fetch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we haven't uh, you know, we haven't sent him to, you know, dog con economy academy or anything. Uh he's just a dog. But he's a nice dog. Mm-hmm. Uh I wish he'd stop licking my face though. I definitely <laughs> really like that. Uh uh but uh anyhow, yeah, I mean but there's kind of a fine line here between things that are unusual and things that are probably means you're hallucinating. Uh but yes. I think that uh, he's I think he's still on the right side, but uh uh well, I don't know. It's not as if you had a you know, one-year-old reading.
0: Ah, yes. That was oh, my son.
1: Well, yeah, that was, that
0: was very... What was he intriguing. reading? I mean,
1: was he reading, you know, like...
0: Oh, well, we would read stuff? him... No, we would read him kids' books, and we'd read to him. Yes. And then he would be able to read them. But the funniest things was he would lo- he loved reading when he was young, and he would do things when he were outside. He'd, like, read signs. He'd say, exit. And it would freak people out. I believe it. Is it like, what, uh, how does that happen? And
1: My uh, daughter uh, could, could read. She knew her letters pretty early. She wasn't reading as early as that. Mm-hmm. But but she was also small for her age. So there was a point in which she was two something. Mm-hmm. And she would, she could read some signs. And she, and of course, this was a word she definitely did not know at the time. She was reading caution. Uh, uh,
0: uh. Yeah. Well, my wife and I would joke that when he was very young, when he first started to read, that we should go to a church or something and have him read something, and then act completely shocked, like, oh my God, how did that... What's going on? It's uh, the Lord. And, you know, well, we didn't do that. Uh, that would have been cruel, but still, would have been funny.
1: To whom? Uh, <laughs> well, to uh, us. It might, have been, it might have been fun, but... Uh, uh, yeah, Ginny read pretty early. Uh, my, my, you know, this typically... I mean, your kid is an exception. Typically, girls read somewhat earlier than boys, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, she read very early. The boys read... They read well, but they didn't read super early. Uh, in fact, a couple of them, like one of my boys has is dyslexic enough, he can barely spell anything. Uh, although it's odd because he can read things easily. Oh, oh. Of, uh, and here's yeah. another Here's another uh, fact that is hard to, it exists, but the books will say it doesn't. Uh, one is, until recently, the books said nobody remembered anything before they were about three. Mm-hmm. But I know better, because I can remember when my sister was born, and I wasn't quite two.
0: Mm-hmm. My brother
1: can remember when he, was, he got pneumonia got in the hospital when he was 20 months old. He remembers it.
0: Oh, uh, sh- How do you know you don't remember people talking to you about it?
1: Well, he remembered, like, for example, at the hospital, uh, how, uh, because we had to leave him there. You know, it, was about, it wasn't close to home. Mm-hmm. We never had any babysitters or anything. So he was left without mom for the first time ever, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know over the night because we had to go home, because the hospital is about 25 miles from where we lived, and he said, I remember how much I hated them. Mm. <laughs> yeah I'm sure, I'm sure he was. He okay. remembered how it was, he was wet from condensation, he remembered the little toy cars, yeah he remembers. Okay. But but my mother, it's, it's her fault, because she remembered, she had an uncanny memory, she remembered everything.
0: Mm.
1: She would, we lived in a small town and she had trouble telling cars apart, she would just remember the license plates. <laughs> But there were only, you know, probably only a 1,000 cars or something there, so she could do that. She just remembered everything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, once, you know, when she was much older, she was ill, and it was some period when she couldn't remember what happened after she was recovering from surgery, and it felt very strange to her that there was ever anything, ever any time in her life that she couldn't just remember. Uh-huh. It, she didn't really know how to deal with it. It was, you know, it, it seems, it was just wrong. <laughs> uh, but, uh... Uh, this had its advantages. Uh, uh, my brother and I, uh, you know, they have various forms of college bowl. Mm Oh yeah. Uh, my brother formed a college bowl team in college and I was still there as a grad student and I had never played. So I still had my eligibility. So he, he, he had me and a friend play and a friend of his. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we utterly devastated everybody else because we remember everything. Mm Uh, uh, particularly my brother and, and I, uh, Except we had to have somebody sit between us because if one of us made a mistake, then the other would try to. We'd get into a fight. So, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, we you know people vary in this. Uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking interesting, a uh, recent psychometric result I saw: most people's knowledge kind of saturates mm-hmm. uh, in early adulthood. Like you know, by the time you're 28, you know, you, you 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 tend to forget things about as fast as you're learning them. You don't. Accumulate a whole lot more net information, apparently. I mm-hmm. mm-hmm. said, but I'm pretty sure that I did. <laughs> uh, I used to occasionally think, like I would play trivial. I would play gang Trivial Pursuit. I me against everybody else. <laughs> I won <wanted> too. <laughs> so
0: you're lucky. I'm the opposite. I have I have a horrible memory. The big advantage is that I have this list of TV shows I like to watch. And every, like, five years, I can watch the whole series again. And the same with books well, that'd and be movies. Cool. So I can... I, I know that I'll like it, and I'll kind of remember the broad outlines, but I still sort of find it surprising, so... Uh,
1: yeah, I... Well, I I'll cheat and watch it anyhow. But, I mean, it isn't as fresh, but, yeah, I probably will remember it. Or, or what was another example? Now, my wife has a pretty good memory, too. And, by the way, she read she read early, but, but three, you know, mm-hmm. in the normal, near-normal human range. Uh, but... Uh, we were once watching this episode. They were, you know, it was something we were looking at Netflix and it was something, uh, it was, uh, the outer limits, you know, which was a science fiction show back in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And she started to say, I remember this episode. And she did. And oh. then she said, uh, you were four. <laughs> the last time you watched this. Oh, that's impressive. But, uh, I was impressed. Uh, uh, but, uh, well, yes the thing I was talking about reading speed. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Reading speed, I think, is an interesting point, which I wish... You know, like we have all sorts of people who claim to teach speed reading. I haven't been able to find evidence that they actually succeed.
0: Oh, I, uh, did, I, would... I did that a while ago. And I, I was how, did, ab- how did it work? I, I was able to read much quicker. It was just harder. Yeah. It's not It's not fun. Did it last? Uh, I didn't really keep up with it. And now, once I... I'm down doing econ, reading. It's like math. It doesn't help at all with figuring out stuff that has math in it.
1: I believe that. But and... how fast... How fast was fast?
0: I don't fast remember. Was I was. I remember rough. I did it with some guy. I, I definitely was going, you know, very fast compared to most readers. But I forgot how far, how fast I got up to.
1: Well, uh, like my daughter has always been a fast reader, and mm-hmm. she wants to. You know, again, something highly technical, no. But if suppose can. she was reading a novel or a history book, mm-hmm. uh, she could probably read it about a thousand words a minute.
0: Yeah. I mean, I read quickly. Like I'll, when a student sometimes will give me a paper to read. And I know that if I read it at my normal speed, the student will not believe that I've read it.
1: So she that happen.
0: I'll read it and I'll like linger at the end just because I don't want to say, Oh, I read quickly. Cause she'll be like, Oh yeah, you're blowing me off. So she's in
1: grad, she's in grad school and she has somebody said, well, I mean, I'm writing this paper, We you mm-hmm. look at it or I'm working on my thesis. She said, Zip. She says, no, I mean really read it. She yeah. signed I did. Yeah. And she, and she, and she can help him with it. Uh, but, uh, and I, I I used to be able to occasionally read that fast, but I think I've slowed down probably because I'm old and my eyes aren't in that great shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but I might still read you know 700 or something. Uh, and uh, my wife probably reads you know 700 800 words a minute. It's but those but I have seen people doing academic studies this and they'll say no one reads that fast. I mean, they'll no. say no one reads 700. I said but every almost not everyone in the house reads that fast, but at least four people do at least at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Uh, uh, I said so, and my boy, who who can't spell, reads six hundred words a minute. I said I don't understand how you can talk about these people don't exist when I'm surrounded by them. Yeah. But the point is they can be rare, because you know they can cluster. Uh, right. You know they're right. like if you know like if I said nobody can read at age one, I'd be wrong. But mm-hmm. if I said very few, I would not be wrong. Right. Uh, but uh, I would be interested to see how well and how much it sticks in terms of reading speed classes, because most of the things I've read look pretty pessimistic in terms of any lasting advantage. I mean, I've never tried it.
0: Probably. Yeah. I mean, almost everything wears off if you don't practice it. And I, I don't uh, practice it.
1: And also if it's uncomfortable, it's hard for people to continue to do things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. There's a million reasons to forget.
0: I mean, it was easier when I was a student and I had to read a lot because it was boring anyway. And it's like, well, the faster I read this, you know, the more the better I can do something else. But now that the stuff I have to read is 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 has technical or it's, I'm reading stuff that I like, I have less incentive to do it.
1: Uh, but, but the thing is, that's the thing, you know, people don't pay that much attention to it, but if suppose you, like I've read things like mm-hmm. the average person who reads at a college level probably less than 300 words a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, easy to establish. I think that's about right. I mean, that was some, I think it was University of Chicago, some number from a mm-hmm. the study there. Uh, and... Uh, but there are you know, advantages to reading faster. Like one of the things yeah. I've never understood are meetings. Yeah. I mean, not discussion meetings, but I, we're giving you an exposition meeting. Said, why don't you just read it? Hmm. I said, you spend a third of the time. I said, well, to most people, that wouldn't be true. But it, it's better if you can do it in a third of the time. And you know, it's the same that would be fairly valuable, but you know, like I have a feeling not a whole lot of careful thought goes into investigating reading. And, and there's related questions like, uh, how fast do people read? Or how easy is it to learn to read in other languages? My experience is is limited. But I've Mm -hmm. talked to people who grew up in China. Mm -hmm. And they said, it takes longer to get to the point where you can read a story easily. With the Chinese writing system. Uh, The guy I was talking about was no dummy. But this is an anecdote. Maybe he's not typical. Mm -hmm. But he said, basically, you need to be like maybe 11 or 12. Before you get to the point where you can genuinely read a story. You know, that's...
0: That's interesting. I wonder how that affects the Chinese educational um, development. I would think that in some sense,
1: children's literature might not exist in quite the same sense as it does, because I guarantee you, I know a lot of people who are reading stories, you know, they were not fully adult vocabulary and stuff, but they are reading stories when they were six, seven, oh, yeah, or, or, or yeah. three, or, yeah. or four. Uh, uh, so, that, I mean, I don't <laughs> know the answer to the question. But it seems like people are not terribly interested, but uh, I mean, I would think Japanese would be the worst because it looks like the ugliest system I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but perhaps Chinese is the very worst because I think these ideographs, uh, you know they don't they're not very phonic, really. They mm-hmm. don't give you a lot of sign by looking at them what uh, you know if you know how to say the word, you know it it doesn't mean, doesn't tell you much about what the word looks like. Right. English English is far from perfectly phonetic, but it's fairly phonetic. are some yeah. languages that are extremely phonetic, like Spanish.
0: I wonder if it would be worth the short-term cost to us if we just reformed English and we, we made it you know perfectly regular.
1: No. No. Yeah. But in the long run, yeah, that would probably be a good thing. Uh, but it would be a royal page. And also, you know, when you do these sorts of reforms, there's a tendency for a lot of your old literature to have sort of a barrier to being read unless, everybody, unless you could easily retranslate it all into the new form. Well,
0: that's what and you do. You do something where it's easy for a computer to translate from one form to the other.
1: That would work. I've heard people say that, you know, they've changed, they forms of some Chinese enough that a lot of older stuff, it's, it's you know, you'd have to work at it to get to the point mm-hmm. of reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah, this is something I'm interested in, but I haven't been able to find... I've looked and looked, but I haven't been able to find... Like, if I had people say, uh, we this is something we could do, it will work this often, they, on average, uh, kids will increase their reading speed 100 words a minute, No well, all of that would be, you know... Uh, valuable to know, yeah. but it seems hard. Uh, a lot of these end up saying, "We're uh, not not clear that it does anything, on on average, or that lasts." Uh, uh, but the other question about, uh, like, if if my contact was right, and basically it's hard to get the point of reading a story for enjoyment when you're eight. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing it kind of shortens your reading life. And yeah. the other thing is that might do something like maybe. Like I don't know about children's stories in China. Now that I think of it, I've never really heard of any. Maybe there aren't any. Or then again, or maybe I'm totally bollocked up here. Uh, well, they'll still have parents.
0: Question. You'll still be able to understand a story that your parent or grandparent reads to you, though, right?
1: True, but it's not the same as reading yourself. You can go a lot farther when you're reading all kinds of crap on your own.
0: But you'd have to worry that the parents are probably the kids are getting more time spent with them with their parents and grandparents because they can't the parent just can't give a kid a book.
1: Maybe. maybe.
0: So that could be. Maybe.
1: Here's a question. Your son read very early. When did he start reading adult level books?
0: Oh gosh, I don't know. Done um,
1: immediately, probably, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it would have been a book that I was reading where he was just curious. I, I really don't know. I don't remember the
1: age. Well, I remember the first grown-up book I read, oh. and God, was it depressing! What was it? It was between. This was between first and second grade, and I mm-hmm. read *The Call of the Wild*. Oh okay. And I said, God, what a gloomy book. Do they all yeah. like this? Anyway, any uh, rate, that was the first uh, uh, grown-up book I read when I was pretty young. Yeah. I remember it. God, they all die at the end. It was, <laughs> it was just depressing. I didn't like it. Uh, I went on to read other things, though. Uh,
0: I think my son so might have read one of my books that I wrote just because, you know, it was neat that Dad wrote a book, and I have them around.
1: My kids would probably be proud they never wrote my book. They never <laughs> read my book or something. But... Uh, Oh, I will. I once gave a talk that talk at UNM, University of New Mexico, Mm -hmm. uh, about a number of the things that later got into the book, some ideas about Neanderthal integration and some other things. Mm -hmm. And uh, and my boy Roddy, who was now 20, he was 10 then, I think, or perhaps Mm -hmm. eight, and he sat through the whole long-winded talking forever thing that I was excited about. And I remember his verdict was it was interesting, but even more boring. He knows, uh, he can be cruel. I'll get him back someday. Uh,
0: Kids are honest, so that can uh, can be turned into cruelty. (laughs) uh,
1: That that, that can be true, yes. Uh, Oh, I should give him credit, though. He did a very interesting and important thing. He came up with a word for people who are lactose-tolerant. Oh, what? Vampires. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a good word, Uh, and it almost... You know, if I really work at it, I might be able to sneak it into as a regular word. Uh, 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 because I mentioned this in the book, and somebody liked it, quoted it, and uh, and then there was a reporter from some Italian magazine said, "Well, this is how new words get created." He was going to he was he wanted he had to get permission to see if he could write an article about the introduction of a new word in the language. But I guess he didn't get permission, so it didn't happen. But that would I would have considered this sort of a cool thing for. My boy, to be able to say at school, yes. Son, what did you do over the summer? I invented a new word. Yeah, uh, one that, and not just a new one for what happens when you sneeze and stuff comes out your nose. He's yeah, he has a word for that too, which is flourish. Uh, and we probably need a word for that, I admit. But uh, vampire is very good, actually. Uh, you know, a species that lives off the milk of another species. Right. I mean, it sounds sinister when you think about it. Uh, uh, well, isn't, but, uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, is not like some white power movement people are drinking milk as a symbol of their, I don't know, genetic <laughs> superiority because they can drink milk and other racial groups well, can't be able to
1: do something. You could bring in, you got to bring in some uh, Watusi because they can do it too. Uh,
0: I can't. I, I can't anymore. So it would go very uh, badly for everyone in the room if I drank a lot of milk.
1: Uh, well, it won't kill you, but, it, but some of it doesn't get digested. That's, yes, yes. Uh, uh, that's a... Uh, you know, that's another interesting story, which we should say for another time, but there are several different people that have independently come up with, you know, all of them who raised some sort of, uh, mostly mostly cattle. I think it might have been camels. There's a, an Arab, a specific Arab one that might have been camels, that were the, the thing that it was addressed to, but there have been multiple. The, the big one, the old one, though, is the European one, and that spread in all sorts of odd places. Uh, for example, there are a group of people who uh, live... Down at the southern edge of the Sahara, mm-hmm. who herd animals and have been uh, fairly famous as warriors and things, and have had some empires in the last couple of hundred years, the Fulani. mm-hmm. fair number of them are lactose-tolerant, and they've got the European mutation. Wow. Or, I call it European, but I don't actually know for sure where it, I don't think it originated down there. Mm-hmm. That would be unlikely. It's more likely to be in Europe or Russia or something like that. But... It's also fairly common in North India. It's been around a while. Mm-hmm. And it's the same one, all descended from the same guy. I just thought it'd be fun to have sort of a family reunion. <laughs> Although now we have other possibilities, like we'll have the R1B family <laughs> reunion. We'll have, you know, like 80 million guys there. Or or the R1A, we'll probably have more, because it's got India in it. Wow. Uh, it'd probably be easier sort of...
0: to organize it around all the descendants of Genghis Khan. Sort of...
1: That would be a starter. That's an easy one. Yeah, Because there's only about 60. I mean, these are the direct, the sons of the sons of the sons. Mm-hmm. There are many more descendants, but they, they're not as easy to identify. But mm-hmm. uh, here they all have, it's just whether you have the Y, y chromosome. But, uh, uh, you know, that's a funny thing. I remember various guys said, well, it could, that wouldn't really happen. I said, uh, yeah, why not? I mean, how, how, why do you think yeah. you find 16 million almost identical Y chromosomes? Luck? <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, it's... What it is is you have to have sort of a lasting advantage, not just that you become a, an emperor and conquer and have a harem, but that your sons have harems. And, and even after that stopped, we know that in the uh, that, that being a member of one of these families would give you social prestige up as late as the 20th century, maybe mm-hmm. up until today. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in Mongolia, most of the people they called nobles turned out to be direct male descendants, like in the early 20th century. Oh. They still had the status of no, no, nobility until the communists took over.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there were guys in central Afghanistan, the Hazara, who are, by the way, kind of a put upon group. They're kicked around by the others, mm-hmm. but they said, "Oh yeah, we're, I'm a direct descendant of Genghis Khan." And then they looked at him, and he was. Uh, what they are is apparently, you know, for a while the Mongols had conquered Iran. Eventually, they got kicked out, and a Mongol army took refuge in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. married local girls. But, again, a fair number of them are, in fact, direct descendants of Genghis Khan. So, but but the, sa- the same thing has happened in other cases. Uh, so there were these you know uh, kings of the Stone Age, or Copper Age, actually, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, in the Indo-European expansion, one of them mm-hmm. is, evidently, he must have been the ancestor of the nobility in many countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I predict that if we dig people up th- from fancy graves uh, you know, in England, say, three or 4,000 years ago, that more of them will have this than if we pick dig people up from an ordinary grave. Because, <laughs> you know, these guys had to have some sort of lasting advantage. Right. But it's uh, but we know it can last 800 years, judging from Genghis.
0: Well, let me ask, how do you know the advantage wasn't, like, some mutation that made them healthier? It it's gave them possible. disease resistance, and they weren't king. I mean, they eventually bred into the king, you know, nobility, but...
1: Well, it's possible, but uh, but we have found that this... Well, what do we know? We know it was already common in certain groups back before the expansion of the Indo-Europeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since the Indo-European expansion probably didn't depend on just their Y chromosome, I'm thinking it came along for the ride. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. Maybe they've got special Y chromosomes. It's. I mean, Joe, uh, you know, I thought about that every now and then. I don't see... I mean, I know it's possible. For example, they know... That if you have certain Y chromosomes in mice, it can change. You know, having a, you, know, you can have mice that are otherwise genetically identical. You could do mm-hmm. that by systematic breeding. Mm-hmm. You have, and you can have one that is identical except for the Y chromosome. And they can act different. But I've never heard of anything like that in humans. But it's possible, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have differences in how aggressive they are, the mice, according to which, which kind of Y chromosome they have. Could something like this be true? Maybe. Possibly. Uh I'm not sure how to tell the difference uh but uh if it's just health you might you wouldn't expect to see it uh, I'm, I'm expecting more it would be like social status and wealth yeah uh which definitely was still true for the for the y chromosome but you know it's 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 possible it's possible uh it's kind of unlikely because there aren't that many genes in the y chromosome, but there are some, mm-hmm. so you know maybe uh There's a one gene that most people have four copies for, and there's a group of people in North Asia, only have two. They have a big deletion, half Mm -hmm. a megabyte of their Y chromosome has disappeared. I said, does it do anything? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I haven't seen anybody ever look. Uh, It could, though. Uh, I mean, I would be more likely to believe that one did something, since it's kind of an obvious big difference Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, half a million bytes have just disappeared. Uh, But, you know, they, they don't seem to suffer from it. I just wonder if, you know, does it make them better dads or something? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, nobody's, I don't think anybody's seen anything like this with the main Y chromosome here, but, uh, yeah, it's always gotta be a possibility. Uh, but, uh, I'll tell you, it had to work in several different environments. Like R1A worked in Germany, it worked in Russia, it worked in Poland, and it worked in Pakistan, in India, and <laughs> Iran. Uh, I'm just saying the more environments you see it work on, after a while you start thinking it's more historical momentum than it is just war, but maybe not. I don't think I don't think anybody knows. Uh, if I had to bet, I'd bet that it was, uh, you know, is it possible for people to remember that these guys are the descendants of somebody famous and expect, you know, and can give them higher status because of it? I said, that is true. We know that happened with Genghis' descendants. They yeah. did have higher status.
0: Yeah, of course. That was after they had writing, so it we don't know if that could happen.
1: Well, true, Prehistory, true. Uh-huh. but uh, but I'll tell you, I don't think most of those people spent a lot of time reading in Mongolia. Uh, or in, uh, although you know, read, writing existed, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, that might be. If you can find an example where other people had writing, but the people doing it didn't, you might be able to see mm-hmm. if it if it requires writing to transmit this. But. Uh, uh, Like, we also, there's sort of an echo effect. There was a guy with R1B who was a king of Ireland, and then he had even more people descended from just his personal version of R1B, even though he's got, he too is descended from whoever it was 5,000 years ago. So there is sort of an echo effect where it happened again, and we know those guys were much of the aristocracy of Ireland in the last 1,500 years. Well, how much... this was, this guy was called... uh, what was his name? A deal of the nine hostages. Mm. And there's probably two, three million people who are his direct, uh, male descendants.
0: How much of his uh, genome could we reconstruct if we, you know, had a million of his descendants? Is it possible to look at the data and say, yeah, someone this many generations back must've.
1: Well, I don't know. I think it would be tough because, you know, the Y chromosome doesn't get diluted, but everything else is getting diluted by half every generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, although it's possible that in the first few generations they did better than average because they were you know, kings or right. the son of a king or something. Uh, I feel better trying it with Genghis because it's a little more recent. It's only yeah. 800 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, we could you know dig him up and everything, yeah. probably. Uh, and that's probably already underway, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, I actually had somebody once tell me that they – they found him, and they were going to have a big to-do and, and release all the information in a big press conference. But then it never happened, so I don't know what the story was there. Uh, but deal with the hostages, yeah. So you know, this explains uh, Liam Neeson, probably. <laughs> you know, you're you're just good at killing lots of people who threaten your daughter. It's uh, hereditary. Uh, uh, I have I seem to remember there were a couple of. Y-chromosome variants that people thought might be a risk for heart disease, mm-hmm. so that's at least doing something, not mm-hmm. a good thing, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not sure whether I believe it, but I have to go back and look, I mean, people, you know, people can end find something it's a mistake, and then they keep finding it because they expect to find it, you know, P-hack, you know, it's, it's not purely dishonest, it's a mistake, right. but, it can, but it can persist, right. uh, you know, generally when people say, you know, variant X of this gene has a big, strong effect on personality, usually they've turned out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's at all common. You can have something that has a strong effect if it only affects one family and screws them all up deeply, but then it never gets common. Uh, But, uh, oh, here's one. Have you ever heard of... All right. I might have already told you this. Stop me if I have. There was a a hereditary uh, thing that made you prone to a certain kind of cancer.
0: I don't think you've said that
1: to me. There are several things like this, but this particular one... I'm trying to remember the name of it, but the particular cancer cause would be little cancers, usually benign, of the adrenal glands. Mm-hmm. And if you get this, uh, you would tend to produce enormous amounts of adrenal hormones, <coughs> mm-hmm. and uh, which is not good. And it's a dominant; you only need one copy for this effect to happen. Mm-hmm. And there, and so people were writing articles about it. At first, they just noticed there was this family where a large extended kindred where a certain number of people. Essentially, about half of them were were like had you know they would have explosive tempers because mm-hmm. if the, if they had this they would be producing you know tremendous amounts of uh, of adrenal hormones yeah and uh, uh, and, it, and you know their blood pressure would go up and you know various other bad things late in life they tended to get other kinds of cancers that were more serious and tended to kill them mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and all of this was somewhere back in the East Tennessee. It was a very large kindred, and they referred to these as. Art- I, mean, I read these articles later. Like now and then, I will skim through neurological uh, uh, you know, scientific things, but I can't read all of them. There's too much. Mm-hmm. I had never read about this, but I read about it later. And then I went back and looked at some of the early articles. They were the m- blanks. They were never going to tell you who they were. <laughs> they were the McCoys.
0: Oh, gosh. Yes. The Hatfield and McCoys.
1: Those, those McCoys. Yeah. And it's still a problem. They mentioned some little girl who was 12, and when she didn't get away, she'd stamp her feet, get so mad she'd faint. Uh-huh. She had this. Now, <laughs> they were able to operate on and remove the benign tumors. Now, she still has risks later in life because of this, uh, you know, there are other cancers that, that can result from this, mm-hmm. but at least, you know, she was a lot better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and this finally came out a few years ago. And people said, oh, well, who knows if that had anything to do with the feud? <laughs> I said, yeah, because just because, you know, half of the people in the family are you know about five standard deviations easier to get mad than any abnormal human being? <laughs> yeah. Why would that have anything to do with? It? And they kept it secret for a long time because they're afraid they could never get insurance, mm-hmm. and that people would think that they were you know a bunch of violent backwoods hillbillies, which of course they are. Uh, but uh, but the thing is, you know, I don't you know, I don't know anything equivalent about the Hatfields. Um. But it doesn't always take
0: two. No, no, it, it wouldn't, especially in an Although honor I've, culture. I've
1: heard bad things about the Hatfields. One, the guy who was sort of the patriarch of the clan back in the real days of the feud, they called Devil Ants Hatfield. That makes it sound like he might not have been the easiest person to get along with either. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, yeah, uh, the Hatfields uh, and the McCoys. The McCoys had a genetic thing that makes them about half of them super, super, super irritable. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny because you know when you come up with a story like that, probably the reason the conclusion is it probably had a lot to do with it. And therefore, reporters as well as uh, uh, researchers say, "Oh no, that could." It's like anything interesting is wrong. Uh, I, mean, I think that was one of the problems with this idea. We had a bunch of horsemen who came out of the eastern Ukraine and conquered all of Europe. That was too interesting to be true. It was true, though. Uh, also, it's too violent to be true because people people couldn't be like that. I, you know, I once saw a couple of versions of people who were Holocaust deniers because they knew that people couldn't be like that. Nobody could be that evil. I mean, you know, these were sweet Holocaust deniers. Like, no one could do those bad things, which I thought was interesting. I mean, they weren't Nazis. It was just some 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 young sophomore lady who was foolish, but, you know, was trying to project niceness onto the universe. Uh, uh, but, uh, Anyway, Mm. anything else up? You you probably, it's late for you. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's about 2.30 or so. Um, Yeah, no, I I really appreciate it. This has been a a great conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Future Strategist. If you like this episode, please consider joining my Future Strategist Facebook group, and also please consider leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm extremely grateful to the people who have donated money to Greg's GoFundMe campaign. As of this recording, we have raised $461. I realize the money was almost certainly more an appreciation of the contributions that Greg has made than myself. But still, it means a lot to me that people are are willing to donate money for something that I've otherwise volunteered to do. Goodbye.